Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 167. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are joined by a very special friend of Monoreal Radio, Lisa Denoto-Glasner from The Castle Run. Lisa joined us on our review of the live-action Lion King, and we are so excited to have you back today. Thank you so much for having me back, and this is going to be a very fun conversation, I think. It's going to be very fun. It's going to be very different from our Lion King conversation, I do suspect. Well, that's really why we wanted to have you back, because you had mentioned off the air the last time that you had very similar feelings about Beauty and the Beast to ours. So we're just going to open up the echo chamber and <laughs> and let them have it. Exactly. All right. So before we get into our review of the film, I, I want to talk about some of the hype that went into this movie, because I remember specifically when they announced that they were doing this it's obviously a hot button topic for a lot of people given the perfect film that the animated version is all that the animated version accomplished being the first animated film to be nominated for best picture at the academy awards so this was obviously a lot to tackle and when they announced the casting of emma watson a lot of people seemed to be a little taken aback and I remember there was like fan art that was done this is of all the things I remember it's the fan art of her in the dress at the top of the stairs and it looked so convincing a lot of people thought it was like a teaser poster do you remember the buzz around this when this news dropped definitely to me this was the big can of worms because up to this point when they really started cranking out these live action remakes, it was Cinderella, it was Alice in Wonderland, it was Jungle Book, it was all of these Walt era films. So you're talking about being a generation, in some cases, give or take two generations removed from these films. Now you're just feeding these films back to the people that grew up on them. So I think that was where the buzz initially came from. And of course, casting is going to be a huge issue. For me, Lisa's a very busy person, so we have known for quite a while that we were going to have her as the guest on the show. And we've been probably talking about this for a month. And for a month, I have been trying to figure out how I wanted to answer this question. <laughs> you knew it was coming. <laughs> and I still don't really have a great answer because I go back and forth. I like Emma Watson more and more every time I watch it. Is she the perfect Belle? I don't know. But weirdly, I can't really think of anybody else who I would have cast. Maybe Anne Hathaway, because I know she can sing, but I think that she might have been aged out of this version of it. Lisa, what are your thoughts on the casting of Emma Watson? So I go back and forth, but I think what it all means and going back and forth the way I do when I watch her is that she's, to, to me... Setting aside the fact that she's Hermione and that's just my own personal problem, like that I have trouble detaching her from that character. She plays the role very flat. And so like, as far as her as a character and like being able to get into her as a character and like feel her in the scenes and feel chemistry where there needs to be chemistry and tension and all that stuff, that's kind of lacking. But then it kind of works because original Belle wasn't very likable because she was so over the top and singing about her provincial life. And so like that first song, 
And I was so curious how the first song was going to feel to me because Belle's not a likable character in that song. And I was wondering how that was going to come across. And the more I watch it, the more I think, you know, she's a lot more likable in this live action version. But I think it's because she's playing her flat and I just don't dislike her. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of why I feel like I've got this like ambivalent like feeling about her in the movie, but maybe it kind of makes sense. (laughs) Like maybe it's how, how flat she's playing the character that makes me dislike her less. I think I you know. just articulated everything I have been trying to like <laughs> decipher for the past month. I totally feel you on the Hermione thing. I feel like Emma Watson would like hate to know that because I know that she did try and separate herself from that role. But it's so hard to because in real life, she is also such a bookworm. Like she does this book fairy thing where she will just go and leave books she'll hide them around London for people to find just because she loves the books and she wants to share them with people. And I love that about her. I love that she's a reader. And I think that that so naturally translates into Belle, but it's also very hard to separate the Hermione from that. Yeah. And like I said, that's my problem, not hers, but you know, and it's, it's for all the right reasons. You know, I grew up, we, well, not, not grew up with her. I was older than that, but you know, she, it was a long period of our lives where she was that character and all we knew of that character before was the written word. So she she is that character. For sure. Love form. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not a negative thing. It just kind of took me a minute. But, yeah, no, I mean, I knew I knew we were going to talk about this, obviously, too. And um, so I've given it a lot of thought, too. And I was kind of trying to figure out why, even though I don't necessarily, for example, you know, in the first song, I don't like her, but I don't, I, but I dislike her less. <laughs> That makes sense. And I think the other thing, too, for a lot of people that knew her as Hermione. Now, like me personally, I don't care because I don't care for Harry Potter. I didn't watch the movies. I didn't read the books growing up. So I think it was like I'm sort of on I'm kind of in the minority. Right. Like I was on the outside looking in when it came to like this like really harsh response to her, because I mean, just on face pun intended on face value, she looks the part. You know what I'm saying? So like I'm and I know that she can act. I know that she's, you know, an accredited actress. So I couldn't figure out why people had such this like strong response adversely to it. I thought people would jump all over it. But I think the thing is, and this is just true of any cultural phenomenon, when you originate a role and you are that big in that role to go and then tackle another iconic role that you didn't originate, I can see where some people would be taken aback. I think they thought she was going to play it one way. She sort of played it a different way. Um, but I remember that that the fuel was added to the fire even more. But remember, I'm talking about like fan art when the trailer dropped. My God, that was one of the most polarizing trailer responses I have ever seen. I think so. Looks like if you were finding out that like Mark Hamill was being cast as Iron Man, like, yeah, you'd be like, I mean, I guess that's kind of cool, but I don't know how that's going to be. Well, I, that was kind of a response when people found out that he got cast as Chucky. When he was, <laughs> when they redid Child's Play and they put him in it, I know that was kind of the response that a lot of people had. But what do you, do you remember what your response was to this initial trailer? I think it was, oh no. <laughs> um, I remember when she looked at the rose and I thought, okay, 
I could get on board with this, but everything else was a big, oh no. Well, the, the question at this point that we have to answer is, is the entire movie, oh no. And that's what we are going to discuss here. Let's just talk about the opening scene, which is so vastly different from the opening scene that you get in the animated version. In the animated version, you get the stained glass. The, you know, it's 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 the pictures and there's the narration of exactly what happened. Here you actually got to see it play out. Well, before you even get to the stained glass, they've got that beautiful, albeit computer-generated, multiplane camera shot. Yeah. The first time you see the Beast Castle and it pushes in and it's, you know, a nod to... Walt's classic films where he's always got that gorgeous multiplane shot. Uh, so not only do they take that away completely, but the CGI is so bad. When this hand comes up with a rose, I'm really missing the stained glass windows at this point. And we're not even 30 seconds into the movie. Well, I think this is sort of the bugaboo. Let's just get, it's going to keep coming up. This is the bugaboo with the entire film, right? It's, it's the CGI. The CGI is in my opinion, it's the biggest problem with the film. And I'm curious to see how both of you feel about that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it's a little rough. It's a little rough. I mind it less. I mind, well, as as I will be probably discussing at length, I mind as I I mind it less with the with the house staff. I mind a lot of things less about the house stuff in this movie. Um well, I'm sure I'll talk about that a lot as we go. Right. And I mean, that's that's it, right? Like, before we get into that, you do get this, you get introduced to this castle and you get introduced to this big elaborate party and the the costumes are great. However, th- maybe this is just me, but the makeup that they put all of them in looks clownish. Am I the only person that feels this way? Well, it's supposed to. Yeah, I think it was supposed to look extremely garish. Like when they're zooming in and like painting his face and you can see every crease and crinkle. It's obviously not supposed to look pretty. It's supposed to look like that ick. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I didn't love the lack of color in the scene. I, I didn't get what they were trying to do with it, but it just didn't work for my eye. And I, I'm constant, you know, ob- the obvious comparison is Cinderella um, because that had just come out with, you know, the live action and you've got these grand ballroom scenes. And I just felt like they were so much more beautiful and well done. It felt much like a much tighter space on the screen. And I just wasn't getting that like soaring feel from it. And he was horrible. <laughs> he was horrible. <laughs> I think like it was better left to my imagination what he was like before, before the change. Cause he was awful. And after having seen that, I had a lot of, you know, the, 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 the things that they try to sprinkle in to make him sympathetic or backstory didn't undo what I saw in the beginning about who he was. I do appreciate though, that they took a risk and instead of like most Disney fairy tales, they expect us to take things at face value. You know, that's why we all bought into the stained glass and the animation, I like that they did set this up as a period piece, but since they bothered, 
I feel like we needed more of a reason for the Enchantress to just show up. Like you said, he's horrible. You know, he's got it coming to him. But I sort of wish that they had leaned into that a little bit more. And maybe, you know, this party is all women that he's dancing with. But maybe he's got like a little bit more disdain for people that they're trying to set him up with. Maybe he's really basing, he's really judging them based on their looks. And that's why... I, I wish instead of showing up as the old hag, she had maybe been one of these girls in disguise that he sort of looked past. And then I feel like there's more of a reason to throw the curse down. Here, you bothered to give us this whole scene, and it's pretty much the same thing as the fairy tale. It's just face value. He's being rude, and he needs to be taught a lesson. And the funny thing is, in the animation, they do say that 10 years have passed, so he was 11 when he got cursed in the animation. You're, you're 11. You don't know. Mm-hmm. But I feel like... That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. And he was a child when he made those mistakes before. And so it was more of a... It, the, the the curse seemed less justified. Right. And I kind of wish they had done that here. Either leave it as a child or give us more of a reason that he's a jerk adult that's going to deserve this. The Enchantress... I don't know. This is probably not the time to get into this conversation, but no, I think the Enchantress it. is the worst character in the movie. It was Agatha the level all of along. Cruelty in the Enchantress and what she did because, you know, she crashed a party and they didn't take her rose as a ticket. So needless to say, not only does, you know, as in the animation, not only does she punish Beast, but she, he, she punishes all of the waitstaff, which, you know, it was bad enough as it was, but now... She's punished the waitstaff and the end game is not that they're stuck like that forever, but they're inanimate objects. They die. You know, and I think this is this is a big problem, too, because you can make the case for in the original animated film. We're led to believe, if I remember correctly, he, he didn't he didn't really have parents. Right. He was sort of being raised by this staff. So I could sort of understand, like, if you're going to punish the staff for raising this this literal little beast i like i get it because otherwise then you don't have a film but in this case to to piggyback off of what you're saying she just shows up we don't know why she crashes a party like you said they don't accept her gift and instead of just punishing the adult she punishes everybody and it just doesn't seem justifiable now maybe the way i'm thinking about it in the animated does Enchantress sound a little bit like another Disney character, like Maleficent, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. All I'm, because she didn't get invited to a birthday party. And not just that, but, and this is fast forward to the end, so I'll just say it very quickly. But at the very end of the movie, it becomes very clear that villa- the villagers come in and they yes. are couples, of, you know, wives and of the waitstaff that's been stuck. Families so they, torn apart. Yeah, their memories wiped by mm-hmm. this enchantress. And they've been apart from their loved ones who have been in this castle stuck as, you know, inanimate objects for however long. So it's very messed up. <laughs> <laughs> it is. She punished yeah. an entire village because one person upset her. And you know what? Yeah, didn't take the rose. No. Exactly. And they could have probably recouped on that if all of the vil- the villagers were horrible to her. Like if she was the town outcast and you sort of get the impression that she is because later on she does rescue Maurice and she's kind of living out in the woods. 
Uh, and there was also a cut scene where Belle gives her bread and jam, which they didn't show. So I could understand if she wanted revenge on the whole town, sort of like Maleficent did, because eventually she puts everyone to sleep. But no one is really unkind to her. Other than the beast. Correct. Doesn't Gaston say, like, what you don't believe her? She's just a whatever. Yeah, he, he says you're gonna what are, you're gonna hang your innocence on an old hag. It was like something to yeah, that. Something yeah. That. So that so, was the only like unkindness of you know it's Gaston. It's, so. yeah, it's to be expected. It's yeah. to be expected. He's going to do it to everybody. And when she eventually does transform into you know as they call her the beautiful form, I got to bring it up. It looks. You know where I'm going with this. It looks like the bad CGI from the 2016 Ghostbusters. I got it in there. It it looks like how horrible those ghosts looked. And this is a part of a bigger discussion for when we do get to the staff in the home. So I'm gonna pin yeah. I'm gonna pin the Ghostbusters conversation because there's something to be said for that when we get to them. But it looks like a video game when when she transforms and she's got you know, that glow to her, it looks like something I've seen on PlayStation. I also don't love that it's all one palette. I can appreciate the gold because that later comes back in Belle's dress. It's sort of, I guess you could argue that the color does sort of play a role, like a theme throughout the film. But you don't even get to see, you know, she's supposedly this this beautiful person in disguise. You don't even get to, like, see that beauty because it's also muted. Yeah, I find myself like always squinting at the screen in that scene, trying to see like where the pretty faces yeah. in the glow of gold. Yeah, it was, it's just, the, it, it's very strange. Very strange. And, and this is just my overall, it's gonna come up again and again, but like the tiniest changes, not enough to make it its own, but enough to be like, why'd you just change that? <laughs> like, what an odd thing. Because um, there's so, really yeah. no payoff. No, no, there's not. Like for a movie that's an hour longer than the original, they cut a lot. Yeah, yeah you right. Know. Yeah, it's, it's all—it's like an oxymoron, but it's true. You know, for it to run so much longer and and there to be so much less substance at the same time. Um, and it's funny that you bring that up too, because the director of the film is such a fan of the original. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, Bill Condon. And he actually went on to say that he loved it so much that he wanted to pay homage to the things that they did right and change what he thought could be better. Well, here's the problem. That movie got nominated for Best Picture, and this one didn't. And when you do a remake, this is just me, and maybe I'm looking too much into it, so I'm really interested in getting your takes on this as well. When you're doing a live-action remake of a Disney animated classic, you don't pay homage to it. You do a live-action version of that movie. So if that's your mentality going in, and you're going to remake this, I mean, it is quite literally a perfect film, you're probably, in hindsight, setting yourself up for disaster. Yes, Bill. What's I that? hadn't heard that line before, but I think that's really interesting because while I have never been able to articulate it like that, it's it's 
might be kind of the root of why I'm reacting differently to the original live actions versus the current live actions. Because like Cinderella and Jungle Book, Pete's Drag, they were, they were their own thing. They were more able to be their own thing because they were based on stories that were much looser and you know didn't have the, the sort of detail that you'd need in a live action, obviously. But they 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 added depth. They added depth of character. They I came out of the movies feeling like there was a reason to watch them because I knew more about the characters. Um, not that they not that the story had been changed, but it had just been made. It had been deepened. Like I got something out of it. Like I don't think live action is inherently better than animation. So you've got to have a reason to make the movie. The reason might just be art, like to make a beautiful thing. But there's got to be a reason to make the movie. So you know the original movies. I I. I love the live action Cinderella. We've talked about that before. I yeah, love sure. a lot of the, the early live actions, but, and I've never been able to articulate that before, but some of the, the newer live actions feel like I'm watching a play yes. of the old movie. Aladdin, that's another conversation, but um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I did not care for live action Aladdin. Um, and, and, and I thought to myself, as I was watching it, this feels like I'm watching a tribute to Aladdin or like a high school putting on a show of Aladdin. It doesn't feel like it's a movie that's made in and of itself for its own purpose. So anyway, that, I'm, I'm sorry. I just went off on a huge tangent. Um, but that was really interesting when you said that he said paying homage, because I think that's what I don't like. I agree. I mean, Bill, what's that saying? If you love something, let it go. I think you just should have let this one go based on the research that we've done. I feel like this was sort of a vanity project for him. Almost like what, oh, you're going to love this. Like what Paul Feig did to Ghostbusters, where you're taking a risk. And see, that's the thing. I have to give you credit for trying to take a risk because you know these films have a built-in fan base, a very vocal built-in fan base. So if you don't get it right, you're going to have to deal with the consequences. And... I'm not saying that you have to listen to the fans and pander to them, but you cannot make a movie and just pay them no mind and ignore what people love about it. Because then when you miss those things, that's when people are unhappy with the remake. And I think, Lisa, to your point, that's sort of like what I was talking about before is that, you know, the outcry with the trailer was that you're remaking a film where the stories have been very tightened, whereas the other films that you mentioned, like a Cinderella, you know, it is just sort of a fairy tale where you take things at face value. Like the prince in that film hardly has any speaking lines and he's got no character arc. And they improved that in the live action so much. Yeah. My beloved Pete's Dragon. I sort of get where you would question what would that look like with a CGI dragon as opposed to a live action one? So yeah, then it's worth maybe giving it another try for a modern audience. With this, we are the modern audience. We're still here. So I think that this, to me, feels like what you're saying about Aladdin is that like this is just his interpretation of it. It does feel like, to me, that he saw the play Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and was like, all right, this is what I want to adapt to film instead of really doing the homework of the animation and using that as your source material. To springboard off of something that you just said, I'm glad that you brought up Paul Feig again, even though that's that's an era of my life 
that I don't want to relive. There is something to be said for that because our biggest issue, well, not part of the big issues we had with Ghostbusters 2016, and a, and it can be said for just about anything. One of the big problems with that film was, as you just pointed out, there are built-in fan bases. The same is said for Disney. So I actually think this is a very fair comparable. When you don't stick to the source material. When you go so far off of the source material that that built that fan base and that made it so endearing and so interesting. When you try to do it your way and you get so far off course that you've made something that's completely different, you're going to get called on it. It's the same reason why, albeit they were cheesy and hokey and they're over 40 years old at this point, this is why, not in every case, but in at least a few cases, people hold the Richard Donner Superman films in such high regards. It's why they hold the Tim Burton Batman movies in high regard. It's why they hold Christopher Nolan Batman in high regard. It's why people love what Favreau has done with the MCU. It's why they love what he's doing right now with Mandalorian. You're you're very much sticking to source material and expanding on complex characters. They're not trying to rewrite the book. This, in this case... I got the feeling Bill Condon is trying to rewrite the book. I think he tried to rewrite it and then chickened out because nothing he did deviates far enough where even if I were upset about it, I could be like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. I feel like the liberties that he took sort of danced out of the line, but not far enough where he completely made it his own. I would like to also point out that we are not five minutes into the movie at this point. <laughs> well, we've dabbled in a lot of other scenes and areas, so it'll go much quicker, I'm sure, going forward. Oh, yeah. It's, we, we never go off on tangents on this show. Not at all. Um, but, but I think it's important. I, I think that, you know, at the risk of repeating ourselves over and over again, because it is so striking from the beginning of the movie, and and, and it, you kind of, upon first viewing, I kind of hoped it would like clean itself up a little bit, and perhaps where we're like in a Maleficent, you you know the story, but they're showing you what happens behind the scenes. I kind of thought like maybe that's what they were showing you behind the scenes, but they kept showing you behind the scenes things that really never made sense or added up or just kind of felt forced. So I'm sure it's going to keep coming up, but. It, it's striking in the first five minutes of the film that that's what they're trying to do here. Absolutely. It's strange, too, to watch. Like, it's one thing to watch an animation where there's a character singing and flailing about and, and uh, you know, and, and dancing while there's... And, and the townspeople are just sort of reacting semi-normally in animated, you know, an exaggerated animation. But it doesn't quite work in real life to have a woman, like, prancing and singing through the town and everybody else is just acting normal. They could have done something cool. Like they could have broken into dance. They, like they're they're like if you're gonna suspend disbelief to get yourself to watch a woman walk to watch Emma Watson walking through the town singing, you know it doesn't quite work for your brain to also have to process just sort of townspeople milling about. <laughs> so I don't know. I think they just but, but again they like didn't he didn't commit like you know he, he stuck obviously with the the the, the you know musical approach of just walking through singing but then kind of didn't have the rest of the cast act accordingly 
I agree because I love the little beat that they added where she skips on the rocks. But I would have loved to see more like the animation. Belle's nose is literally stuck in the book and she's dodging the water as it's being thrown down the drain and she's dodging all of it. You know, it's a busy town. She's trying to weave in and out of people. I would have loved to see more of that sort of like... um not go like full Pirates of the Caribbean with all of the gimmicks. And I'm not saying like walk on a teeter totter necessarily, but I would have liked to see some of those sight gags or like even what they did in Jungle Cruise where Emily Blunt makes her her first escape. Just some more of those like physical comedy kind of stunts to get her through this scene. We talked about the reaction to her casting. Did you think the singing held up from Emma Watson? I kind of touched on this before, like she's not the original voice. She doesn't have the original voice and that's, you know, she's not Paige. Um, but she, I was kind of okay with that. And like I was saying before, I, I, for me, it's almost like she's a more likable character because she can't belt it out. She's she's a little bit humbled by her singing. Um, the, the auto tune, I, I feel like, um, gets a little rough on the ears. Like I could have lived without that. I just would have preferred to hear her sing naturally. Um, but I, I feel like I like her a little bit more because she sings a little bit more like a regular person. I agree with that. I agree with that too. I, th- it's funny. My note about this scene is something about it feels forced. And I think, I think you, Lisa, articulated that very well in that like it's one thing when they do it in Enchanted and Giselle is walking through Manhattan thinking she's in a fairy tale world and everybody's staring at her because she looks like a kook. And that's the that's the comedy of it. But in this case, it's happening, but people are reacting as if this is just normal behavior. <laughs> I have sort of a weird criticism about that. Okay. This little town is too populated. Like, I appreciate, like Lisa said, they tried to, you know, do like that big Broadway number. And I can appreciate that you have so much going on in the background to make it feel busy and feel like these people are starting their day. And like I said, I would have loved to see Belle play off of that more and like weave in and out. But with this many people in a town, she should be flying under their radar. Like, what What makes her so weird? Why do you even notice her with this many people around? Like, even in Manhattan, you're going to notice Giselle because she's in, like, a poofy wedding dress and she's looking for a tree. But in this case, Belle's not dressed out of the ordinary. All she's doing is she's reading. Not, she's not even the only one in blue. Yes, exactly. Which kind of bothers me. And, like, Emma Watson is a beautiful woman, but, like, there are a lot of beautiful women in that town. For sure. I wasn't like, oh my God, Emma Watson. You're like, I mean, she's Emma Watson, so that's cool. But like, you know, as far as like, if I was just looking at her and didn't know who she was, I wouldn't be like, you know, she's prettier than that model that was chosen to play that role. Exactly. Um, also like the town library, which looks like it's like a renovated church or something, has womp, like nine womp. books. Has like nine books. I mean, I'm sure she's really loves those nine books, but. That was a huge disappointment for me. And you lose that like really cute interaction with the with the bookkeeper because he really knows her. He's like the only one who appreciates, you know, her book nerd self. It felt like just kind of such a passive interaction in there. And this is supposed to be her big moment. And then the worst auto tune happens with, you know, like her 
big gusto moment where in the animation she's sitting at the fountain and she's talking about meeting the prince at chapter three and then just flat. I mean, look, like Lisa said, she's not Paige O'Hara. She's not Susan Egan, who originated the Broadway role of Belle. And I mean, I know they tried. They tried to help her. Like, I think Susan Egan, like, offered to coach her, like, wanted her to really pull this off. Um, I'll be honest with you. The auto t- this is this is going to be controversial with you. I know for sure. The auto tune bothers me less. Hold on. It bothers me less than Gaston. Wow. Wow. This is my opinion and my observation. Gaston is funny because Gaston is forever the guy that peaked in high school. That's kind of how he was in the animated film. I know they kind of like really tried to go for it in this version, but that's what he is in the animated film. And because he is so in love with himself and he's so hokey, it's funny. In this case, I think the way that he's played, no offense to Luke Evans, he's almost too theatrical and he's very breathy. I almost got the feeling that they were trying. This was the first time I got the feeling, actually, and and, and I think sort of the whole cast in many ways is sort of guilty of it, that they were trying to do the Broadway show as an animated or as, as a live action film. I'm also wondering if they sort of had to hold back to match Emma Watson because most of them are classically trained in theater. I mean, obviously, Josh Gad, Luke Evans was as well, even Ewan McGregor. I'm wondering if they sort of had to be like dumbed down so they're not overpowering the lead. I mean, that'd be kind of a bummer to like have the entire cast have to dumb down just to like match the lead's singing skills, but... I, it, speaking of adding details and not quite knowing where they 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 lead, I mean, we find out he's a, a captain just returned from war and he's bored. Like, I there were a few things where I felt like, and I said this before about these these remakes, where I I, I was like, I I feel like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get something really good, like we're gonna get like some real meat to this like villain that's gonna help me understand him, or and then it just didn't go anywhere. It's again, it's like if you're going to change something, like give me a reason why. I agree. And that didn't even lend to him not wanting everyone's attention. Because to go back to your point, too, that was something that they took away is that he does love all this attention. I, I love what you said about him peaking in high school because he always you know, gives like a nod and a wink to the three blondes in this film. They're brunettes now. But I thought that that was so odd that he didn't want them falling all over him. I guess they lean too hard into the tunnel vision that he's got for Belle. But I feel like that's such a big miss with the character that it was always a great hunter. He said a great hunter doesn't bother with rabbits. Yes. Which is a great line. Gaston has some powerful, like, I wrote out some lines, like, ooh, that's poignant. Like, that speaks to what's happening in the world. Like, he had some lines, some surprising lines. That was definitely an improvement, was his dialogue overall. But I just thought that that was such an interesting loss for the character, where he didn't want to Mm -hmm. be adored by everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think Luke Evans actually, like, 
nailed it, though. Is he too old for Belle? I think this is the other question. In the animated film, you you don't really get that there's a huge age gap between the two of them. Perhaps because he is a more gruff gentleman and Emma Watson forever looks like she's 17. They just seem like they don't work together. I actually buy it more because I think that they're trying to... I mean, obviously they're going for period accuracy, but... He does make mention at some point of your father's not going to be around forever. Do you know what they do to spinsters in this town? And actually, that's a throw to Agatha. So I believe that they would lean into it, even though there is an age gap, because if he's older, he's going to be looking to settle down now. So that's even more of a reason for her not to buy into it because she's still too young to think about marriage. Whereas if they were the same age, like what reason would like a for argument's sake 20 year old guy why would he be pressing so hard to get married because if it's a period piece they were middle-aged by 13 (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i guess he's like back from war and didn't get married before i don't know worth mentioning too that first there there was a lot of innuendo oh yeah like i guess i didn't catch it all the first time or I was, I don't know, I wasn't tuned in or maybe I just forgot. But when I was rewatching it for this, um, this weekend, I was like, like a really for live action, pretty over the top sort of acted, like words are said and things are acted out sort of in a way that is, I'm not prudish about these things, but I, I was ca- caught a little off guard for just for the type of movie that it is. Like, I, I, I really like it when, you know, these movies operate on two levels, and they always do. Disney is brilliant. Disney, Pixar, they're all brilliant at operating, you know, at a level that entertains both the kids and the parents. But that, to me, seemed like it was, over, it was a little over the top to the point of seeming a little gauche. I'm actually, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I'm wondering if they were trying to replace one type of humor with another because another big change to this film is LeFou's character. He's not only the sidekick, but he is a human punching bag and we're not going to beat up Olaf for 90 minutes. So you're taking away a big part, you know, he's fallen all over stuff and Gaston's like throwing his heavy equipment on him. So since you lose all of that physical comedy, I guess they felt the need to put it back somewhere else but to your point yes it is surprising that that's where they felt the need to make up for it and they really laid it on thick yeah I mean it almost looked like they were like kind of improving on set goofing off and somebody decided to keep the footage like it, yeah. it, it doesn't I can't even imagine like those things being done on purpose while somebody was recording <laughs> it. um I, I'm probably I'm making it sound worse than it is but it was it, it was a little like oh <laughs> No, it's there. It's definitely there. It almost feels like the movie that we got released theatrically was the director's cut. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to stick in this town for a few more minutes. um, And I want to talk a little bit more about how they changed Belle and how she is perceived by some of the other people in this town. I like the idea that they made her crafty in addition to being a bookworm. But... There's just something about it that seems forced, almost as if they were trying to do 
what they did with Mowgli in the Jungle Book and like Mowgli's tricks. Mm. And then they try to have Belle do the same thing because you see how she's doing the laundry and she's using, what was it? It was a donkey or a horse and they have the barrel. And it's very, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's very smart. But I got the feeling that they were trying a little bit too hard. And I think that the reaction of the townspeople is equally as forced. I would agree with that. I think, you know, the big issue is they kind of gloss over it until this point where she tries to teach the little girl to read. This, Yeah, this is where I'm going with it. And when you're talking about period accuracy, not a lot of women were literate at this point. So that is part of what makes Belle stand out. Okay, fine. I'll give you that. So they tried to take it one step further where, you know, she's reading, she's educated, she's able to build these types of things. The weird thing for me in this scene is that I feel like they cut something out because what they did by dumping over her laundry is so harsh. There's literally no reaction from her. She just starts putting it away. There's no, even just like a quick look of a wide eye or I'm not even asking your jaw to be on the ground, but there's just no reaction from Belle whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, setting aside the fact that she apparently invented the washing machine. Um, <laughs> it's strange to me because, you know, there was a lot of talk about how this was sort of a feminist take on Belle before we saw the movie. And then I saw the movie and I was like, the big difference is really just that her father is an artist, right? And Maurice is an, was an inventor, which right. made a lot of sense more so throughout the movie than the artist thing. Like a lot of stuff doesn't make any sense with this artist take, but he, so he's not an inventor. He's an artist, but she's like this crafty, like handing him the right tools and fixing stuff and inventing washing machines and teaching people to read. Like, I don't know if like, I was like, that's, that's like your feminist take. I don't know. Like I didn't need a feminist take, but like, if you were going to do it, like you just like swapped her out with the dad. I don't know. It already was the feminist take. I mean, Bell. 30 years ago in the animation, this was like where the turn of the modern princess really started. I mean, mm -hmm. you Very could true. make that argument for Ariel because she was headstrong. She was going against what her father wanted, but she was also a bratty 16 year old. Belle really like solidified the feminist princess. And what's interesting is that seems to be what they were trying to accomplish here. And yet, at the same time, all of the women in town, not just the men, I could understand it from, the, from a male perspective if she's going against the grain, but the other women in the town do not appreciate that she can read, do not want her to teach other girls how to read. So if, I, I mean, forgive me if I'm overstepping here, but it seems like it sort of contradicts if there's a feminist movement that is to be made in this film, you shouldn't have female characters go against your lead female character for trying to educate other female characters no you're absolutely right Come yeah on. i mean talking through all this just makes it so incredible i'm just sad because i'm there's so many ways that this could have been a very cool remake there's so many things that could have been changed meaningfully they could have it, it could have been cool it could have been very cool i'm realizing that more and more as we're talking and i think just story-wise had this come before everyone calling her out and saying she's odd, she's odd. Like, this would have made her stand out, not just the fact that she's a reader. And I got the feeling that her father 
they yeah we see that he's an artist but i almost got the feeling that he was more of like a toy maker in this i was like are you the father from the great mouse detective are you geppetto like what have they done to you that's what i was reminded of was great mouse detective right yeah Yeah. that's a good one yeah but you have the the other thing that that then happens is because they launch back into bell's song and she goes up on you know into the hills sound of music shot yes it's the sound of music shot i mean if you want i i don't think it it has a place in beauty and the beast the fact that they wanted to recreate it is not the problem the problem is that you're trying to set this in a very beautiful French countryside and you chose this CGI. You chose chose this CGI and she's not even lit properly. So you it's so mm-hmm. clear that she's yeah. standing in front of a green screen. I mean, it just has no place in the movie. It comes out absolutely out of nowhere. She's singing about all her problems with a big smile on her face. Like n- nothing about it makes any sense. The scene is a little jarring to be perfectly honest. <laughs> And this is one of those... You're already remaking Beauty and the Beast. Why do you need a Sound of Music scene? You know, you've got great material to work with, right, with this one movie. Exactly. And this is one of those iconic shots that they miss again. I mean, I get where... Actually, Lisa, I don't know if you know this. They originally were not going to do Beauty and the Beast as a musical. They were going to do it as, like, a straight animation. And when they brought on Howard Ashman... He was the one who, well, they brought him in to basically CPR the film. And because he's such a musical theater guru, I think that's where this shot initially came from was because he wanted to pay homage to The Sound of Music. When they do it in the animation, it's kind of a little hat tip. Here, it's just a blatant ripoff, but they got it wrong. And I'm very impressed that you noticed that about the lighting. It was really bad. Well, because she looks like she's not really there. She looks like a photo booth. Like a photo booth at a Sweet 16 or a bar at Bat Mitzvah where you're in a photo booth and now, you know, we're in Fiji. Where's our big sunglasses? Like that's, to me, that's, <laughs> what, like a she zoom lo- background. that's what she looks like. <laughs> no, I've seen better. I have made better Zoom backgrounds. That's the other thing. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but I, I don't care. There's point <laughs> that we're going to say that's going to sound ridiculous. Well, that's I it. promise no, you that. Like, get it right. I will tear this thing apart. The spatial reasoning is all wrong, too, because their house is supposed to be it's a farm on the outskirts of the village. Here they planted her in the middle of the town. And when she runs out her back door, she goes up the hill and then you see everything behind her here. They like take a beat with the music. She's got to run what looks like a mile outside of the village. So you get the village behind her. It's ridiculous. She should be if this was the animation she should be at the Beast Castle with how far she had to run. I mean, she's feeding chickens in the middle of the street at one point. I mean, nothing should surprise you at this point. Yeah. Let's talk about the Beast Castle. Let's take five and actually talk about something nice. <laughs> and let's go to the Beast Castle. Oh, wait. Nice. I think that a lot of what they did with the sets, not the CGI that is the castle itself. That looks terrible. I'm talking about the actual practical set that is once you get into the castle. Those, I thought, actually were spectacular. I would agree with that. There was a point where I wasn't sure 
because of the way that they lit it, what was CGI and what wasn't. But I can definitely appreciate that these were all practical sets. Yeah, I, I wasn't bothered by, and like you said, it's so dimly lit initially. I mean, I, I, I didn't find it distracting at all, certainly. I, you know, the, the, some of the best things about this movie are the sets and the costumes. It's where you're not really relying on CGI for everything. When you actually took the time to put detail into it, it looks great. It looks like what you expect to see in the Beauty and the Beast live action film. I like that it was also a little bit brighter, even though it's at nighttime, you can actually see into the rooms a little bit more than the animation. I mean, it's obviously done on purpose that it's dark and you can't really tell what's going on. But I like that they didn't wait until Belle gets there during the day to actually show us what it's going to look like inside. I'll, can we? T- I just want to take a half a step back. I know we we're going to be nice and go into the scene, but <laughs> yeah, half a step back because I don't want to forget to mention... One of the things that, again, I, I referenced like that didn't make sense. You know, they changed Maurice to be an artist. So in the original, he's an inventor and he was going to try to sell this machine. Like to, it made sense that he was on this random trip and he got lost. But like he's going to the market. Like Bell was just at the market. <laughs> Where's he going? <laughs> and like if he makes this trip all the time, like why is he lost? <laughs> It makes like no he's sense. Going like, he's going to a different market and he and he can't find it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like he decided, uh, Publix is too busy. I want to go to that new Wegmans instead. You know, <laughs> the prices are much better at the <laughs> Walmart past the castle. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and the castle that none of them knew it was there. How that whole thing is there, and then they're all like, "What castle? Where is it? It snows all the time. It like." It, it does in it, June. It, in June, it, it so much about it just does not make any sort of sense. I'm so glad you circled back for that because I was trying to figure out a way. What I also really don't like is that in this case, lightning strikes a tree to open up the path. Where did this lightning come from? I mean, should I question that? No, because there's snow in the ground in June. But I almost feel. And this that this is something that they didn't flesh out all the way. I feel like Agatha was sort of pulling these strings and she was dictating the when and the how of who was eventually going to get to the castle. And I almost feel like she was the one to reveal this, but they never give us a solid answer on it because it seems like he was led there. Whereas in the animation, they do it so much better. Like he legit gets lost and spun around and then he's got to outrun the wolves. She is the one who saves him though, right? Like when he's left to- When Gaston, when Gaston ties yeah. him to the tree, yeah. She, she saves, she does save him then so she knows then where he is, but yeah. But if it, were, if it was her leading him on, am I to believe that you're rooting for the beast the entire time? Because why didn't you lure Gaston to the castle? You know, you know he's not going to be the one to break the spell. And why did you set the tree upright again? Like you were trying to hide it from the world again. Right. Yeah, that's, no, it's, it's, it's a huge question that goes unanswered, for sure. All right, at this point, this is sort of the moment, one of the moments that we've been building up towards as we've kind of fleshed out everything that's going on with this film 
and I mentioned a few moments ago, the things that work best about the movie are the things that are, you know, practical sets and costumes, practical effects, and there are not many of them. And now you get the CGI characters. This is where I think I want to pick up on where I left off with the Ghostbusters conversation. Okay. We have a new Ghostbusters movie coming out this year. And Dan Aykroyd said to Jason Reitman, I don't care that CGI is cheaper. Puppets look better. There's a reason why nearly 40 years later at the time of this recording, Ghostbusters looks really good. They did use special effects, but they used a lot of puppetry. They used a lot of practical effects. That's why that movie still looks great. It's why Haunted Mansion still looks great. Yes, the the, the attraction. Yes, not yeah, the... Be oh, very careful how God, you word yes, that. Yes, I meant the attraction. In this case, I understand it would have been far more expensive, and this was a very expensive film to make. But if you're going to make these characters look like legitimate candelabras, tea kettles, clocks. It would only make sense to me that you used practical effects instead of CGI because there is just something about them that is such a fail because of how they look. I don't even care, and I know a lot of people had an issue with, well, I wish they didn't look like a candelabra and a... Br- well, then why would you make the live-action... Be- You're making a live-action interpretation of Beauty and the Beast. What do you want it to look like? It's not going to look like the animated version. But if you're going to go for it, doing it the way they did it with the CGI it does not look convincing at all. I think this sort of falls victim to what happened with the Lion King. And it was something that we talked about when Lisa came on the last time is that Mm -hmm. you're doing, albeit CGI, the Lion King was supposed to be a photo reel, Nat Geo style, more documentary style movie, not a documentary. I mean, it's Hamlet, right? But the point is you couldn't make those characters emote in the same way as animation because then you're going to look like a real lion with like crazy googly eyes on him if you try and do that. So I think that that was the challenge here with these objects is to make them look like inanimate objects, but not go too cartoony with them. Now, does that give them a pass? No, because how you didn't do Mrs. Potts, you put it on the flat side of the teapot and not make her built-in nose from the spout. That's a huge miss. I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with everything that you're saying, but like, it's not, I'm not as jarred by it because I think that the house staff are the most redeeming thing about the whole movie. So I kind of look past the way they look I just, I think they're such interesting characters. I think they have much more interesting backstories. They're so much more tragic because apparently they're actually going to die. Like imminent death, which also makes the movie really weird. Like everybody's just kind of chilling, doing their thing. Like she knows that she finds, she's told about the curse. She's not told with the 
that, that love will fix things, but she knows that they're cursed and that they're apparently going to die. And everybody's just still kind of off to save my dad. Like, I mean, it's a very dark idea. Like these people are, these are about to die. Yeah. And, and, and really nobody really seems to care much about that. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the, their C, the CGI is obviously problematic, but it, because I think they're probably the most interesting thing about this movie. Like, I think on the extent to which I feel like I understand their situation more is the only thing that I appreciate. Like I walked out of this movie with that was new. I actually I think. think that's a great, Add. Yeah, I for agree. sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 110% on that one. I'm just looking at this like, if you go see en- Enchanted Tales with Belle and you see the Lumiere there, and that's in an attraction versus what you see here, nothing against Ewan McGregor because I agree with you. I think th- this cast actually, I-, I would go so far as to say I, I think they even match the cast from the animated film the quote-unquote inanimate objects, of course. Uh, yeah. They, I think, match almost stride for stride. I, I think they were that good. Um, yeah, absolutely. But... Yeah, Emma, Emma Thompson as Mrs. Clark. Like, who, who else are you going to... I mean, the yeah, I love the casting for the inanimate objects. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's perfection in everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's just something weird about seeing Lumiere with legs. I know this sounds weird, but because we've seen him hop for so long, to see him just like sprout legs out of nowhere and start running around. There's just something about the visual to me that is just kind of off-putting and strange. I also think, while I like how they designed Cogsworth, because he's a clock, right? I mean, that's what he is. I like that they took the literal use of a face of a clock and they used it for Cogsworth. But is it, it doesn't he look like something didn't render properly in post? There's something about it. It looks like he's missing a layer. He looks flat. Like all of the ornate details aren't like popping off the wood. I would especially next to Lumiere because Lumiere is so detailed in the the texture. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I love the inanimate objects. I do in this movie. I just feel for them. Like I will probably talk more about the the additional songs. None of them. I don't remember any of them, which probably speaks volumes. Like I, I kind of do. I mean, the beasts obviously, but. Um, that song that they sing one more, the light of day or whatever yeah. it is, the song itself, you know, I certainly wasn't humming after the movie, but like, it's a very tragic song, you know, and, and Mrs. Potts and Chip, like you kind of get that a lot more. I feel like the, the tragedy of that situation, I think you get a lot more than obviously you do in, in animation. I thought that was interesting. I wasn't, in, I was, I thought that was cool. Yeah, I definitely like the risk that they took there because I think it paid off. I like that every time a petal falls, the castle crumbles a little bit and you Mm -hmm. definitely feel the added weight of there is a serious consequence for these objects now. As you said, they they are going to die. And you're right. Everybody is kind of like la-di-da and just going about their day. What I would have liked to see, though, instead of the CGI that maybe leaned into that idea a little bit more was if they did do practical effects makeup on these actors, which I know to get some of them to sit in a chair and have to make them. And I mean, there's not a lot that you can do with Mrs. Potts to turn Emma Thompson into a teapot, but like for Lumiere in particular, I think Cogsworth looked good. I think that I agree with you. I think the face of the clock that was clever. I think that all worked, but like for Lumiere, I would have loved to see 
that done as a practical effect and do sort of like the um, the Lord of the Rings illusion to make him smaller than everything else and use the force perspective, especially for, and we'll put a pin in this because I'm sure we're going to have a lot to say about Be Our Guest. But what I would have loved to see happen is that if you were going to go for the CGI, maybe to strip away the humanity every time uh, a petal falls and like give it that visual in addition to, okay, there's a consequence if the beast doesn't find love, but to really see it happen to them and to see them become more and more to disappear into their object more like they did it um, as an example off the top of my head. They did the reverse of it in return to Oz where every time the gnome King takes a soul, he becomes more less, less rock and more human. I would have loved to see the reverse happen here where they're just sinking in to the object even more to touch on something you just said about um, going with the practical effect for Lumiere and doing the force perspective. We haven't talked about, the beast yet and we've seen him okay now if you thought i went down a rabbit hole with ghostbusters hear me out on this i beg you i feel like he could have been i understand you're going to do some cgi to clean him up to give him a little bit of detail you know etc and so forth i feel like the character itself could have been like a, a puppet animatronic CGI sort of hybrid. This is where I beg you to hear me out. <laughs> and I, I don't I don't mean this jokingly. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, when Henson did the animatronics, the puppets and the costumes for the original live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And maybe I'm dating myself. That to me, similar to Ghostbusters, looks good i think the visual of it still holds up really well if you could do that with rubber turtle suits in the 1980s <laughs> you're telling me look look at sweetums okay look at what they do with sweetums in the muppets now of course that is th that character doesn't have the detail that the beast does but you're telling me that you could not have developed some sort of outfit some sort of animatronic or puppet that would have looked better than this i just find it hard to believe well they have it's chewbacca he's got the height he's got the fur i thought that's where you go and i really wasn't expecting you to pull turtles out for that i mean look at what they do on broadway right you know i mean yeah it would have been cool to see that i think it might have helped somewhat with the i i i personally don't think there's much chemistry between um beauty and the beast in this movie you mean and, the one that's called uh, Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I personally was rooting more for Gaston and LeFou. <laughs> <laughs> we, I'm, every, every time, you, you've sympathized for Scar and the Lion King. We are learning more and more about you every time you come on with us. I'm learning more about myself as well, apparently. <laughs> but, I mean, look, I, I, think, I think the facial expressions I think the eyes work really well. The way they animated his eyes, I thought that worked really well. The facial expressions are good. It just it is so clear that he's fake. You know what I'm saying? That is not really there. I'm I'm just looking for something else and it's they just keep swinging and missing on it. No, and it's such a shame because the actor Dan Stevens was in stilts 
this entire time to get the height and get that shape. And that is an achievement in and of itself. Like he had the full bodysuit with all of the um, the sensors for the, the motion, motion capture, capture yeah. re- reference. And he's on stilts. I mean, that was something that I thought that they were going to play with the force perspective a little bit. But no, he really did it. And I, I feel like at that point to put him in a big, heavy hairy costume is is cruel and it would have been even so much more difficult to do the performance but i don't love that they went full cgi with it if they wanted to do it for the body okay fine but i feel like for the face you should have been doing a full makeup yeah i mean set aside what he looks like you just you just lose his just that raw like angry like emotional like just there's sometimes in the animated original where he just roars and you just like feel it in the depths of your soul like what it feels like to be in that moment you know and in this one you get like a song instead some people might like that but I don't know I think you just kind of lose that raw like beast like power no matter what he looks like so I feel like that also sort of comes from the backstory that they tried to give him because you're also losing <laughs> yes yeah, that's, oh, yeah, he is that's, right <laughs> that's how you that's how you sum it up <laughs> because you also lost that relationship like, that he's got to the inanimate objects like they're all his wingmen for all intents and purposes and for this story what really bothers me is that because there is such personal stake that they're all going to die they should have been pushing this and pushing this relationship so much further they're the ones who bust Bell out of the dungeon and just give her the room behind his back. Potts is going to let her go out the window. She's exactly. got the thing. She sees it. And she says it's a long trip, honey. I mean, obviously she's trying to be a little psychological, I'm sure, but like, you know, she sees it's around her ankle and she doesn't say anything to anybody. She just says, oh, it's a long trip. You should have some tea first. Exactly. And they do the dinner bit of go invite her to dinner. But before that, they're the ones who encourage the beast you know, she's not a prisoner. She's our guest. Make her feel welcome. And you lost that whole dynamic, especially the great relationship that he has with Lumiere. Like Lumiere is truly the wingman. Of course, Potts and Cogsworth help, but Lumiere is really the one who's championing him. And that's also where you get that great dynamic between him and Cogsworth because Cogsworth just wants to play by the rules and Lumiere's trying to break them. And you lose so many of these relationships between the characters. Yeah, the relationship between Lumiere and Cogsworth is very different. In fact, there's a, there's one scene, I forget what the line is, toward the, toward the end of the movie where Cogsworth is trying to sort of play by the rules and Lumiere, you know, isn't. And it's almost jarring because it's like, oh, yeah, that's their relationship. But I didn't really see it until that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that point in the film is where is where you kind of like you you firm up their relationship. And it's where, like you said, it's it's so familiar to you. And that's where you expected it to go the whole time. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a big miss in the film because, I mean, Part of what makes the, the animated film so much fun is the relationship between the two of them, right? And they're very much sub-characters, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the whole story. But it gives you something else, and you do get some of that comic relief there. Mm-hmm. And you could have leaned into that a little bit more, because where they do kind of go at each other a little bit, especially with the way that Lumiere, what he says, and the way that he kind of 
he comes up with these schemes and he sort of blames it on Cogsworth. It happens a couple of times. It's actually very funny. Like, in instead of forcing comedy elsewhere, you could have kind of built on that a little bit more to keep it a little bit more lighthearted because it's otherwise a very dark film. And it, it just, it does. It seems like a miss. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here only because the next couple of scenes that we have are very much rooted in the musical numbers and we're going to talk about the musical numbers on their own in a few moments here so I want to jump to the scene where Maurice and Gaston and LeFou go to find Belle and Gaston punches Maurice he just knocks him out, and they're like, keeps on, oh, my future father-in-law, my future father-in-law, which is so different because in the animated film, Maurice is not necessarily opposed to Belle being with Gaston. Here, he wants nothing to do with him, and you get this scene where he knocks him out and ties him to a tree. Why are they even following him? They don't believe him. So, like, why are they off on this journey to begin with, with, like, to find Belle? He, they don't, they truly don't believe Maurice, and yet they're like, you know, on the wagon out in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) trying to listen to him say where she is. Yeah. And then, and then, and then he becomes like a complete sociopath. It begs the question, was he doing that the whole time? Like, was that always the intent to eliminate Maurice altogether? Get him out there to. Cause I never bought the future father-in-law thing. I never bought that he was really trying to help. I I don't know what the end game was. I still don't. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It just seems, again, like something they forced in there. I don't think you needed this scene. Adding this element, adding the shock of watching Gaston punch Maurice and leave him tied to a tree to be eaten by wolves, it doesn't plus the movie. It doesn't It doesn't make the movie better. I didn't see that scene and go, you know what was missing from Beauty and the Beast? Gaston tying Maurice to a tree. I needed to see that in the animated film. Then it beat Silence of the Lambs, and that's why it didn't win. No, like, <laughs> it's not It's not what you needed. So some of these scenes that Condon puts in here, I, I mean, we mentioned it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again after this, I'm sure. I just don't get it. I don't understand what they thought they were accomplishing by adding this. Right. And even more like, I don't know if I was imagining it or not, but the only thing that I thought was interesting about that scene, and there was no payoff on it later in the movie at all. There was a split second where you saw LeFou's face change. Yes. And he looked at him like, like with a little fear and it looked like he was turning. I'm pretty sure I didn't imagine it. Like I, you know, there's a split second where you see him look at him and, and there's a little fear in his eyes and it looks like there's a shift happening. But then there's no change in the movie and his behavior. So I don't know if you saw that. but No, I like that they are trying to flesh him out a little bit more and give him a little bit of an arc. But you're right. They don't follow through with it enough. I would have bought into this more if LeFou did come full circle. And if Gaston maybe had a glimmer of like truly caring about Belle. Like maybe we saw his character deepen a little bit and maybe he really did have feelings for her other than this prize that he's trying to win. Yeah. I mean, he literally just is bored. Right. Like there's no feelings for her at all. I love LeFou's solution to calming him down though. In this scene, uh, <laughs> think, of think of the Nose war. Nose boop. Think of the war. 
<laughs> That'd be laughing. That'd be laughing. Think of the war. <laughs> but I can tell you that you are not imagining that look on LeFou's face. It, like you could almost see like his heart skips a beat. It's kind of the look yeah. that he has when he sees it happen. And he kind of doesn't take a step back per se, but you can see he kind of sways a little bit. Um, no, I mean, listen, it's, it's a good moment. It's a good moment for LeFou if you're really going to build on it. But it's not until he has the, the credenza dropped on him that he decides that he's going to go against Gaston. I feel like if that never happened, he would never have changed his uh, allegiance to fighting off Gaston and, and fighting with the inanimate objects. Right. And in that moment, you don't know whether that look is guilt or whether it's because of the fallen hero and that Gaston is not who he thought he was. Well, probably both, right? Like, you know, like who have I been helping all this time? And again, it's it just that one one more moment where I'm thinking about how great this movie could have been if they had leaned in to how evil what Gaston was to like, you know, LeFou Le realizing what, I don't know, there, there's a lot of kind of interesting things that you could have leaned into in this movie and really um, made it very interesting. Something that they leaned into, and it's sort of interesting, this was one of the ads that I didn't necessarily dislike, which is actually like the nicest thing I've said in the last like hour. When they have this magic book scene and they go to Paris and they go to the home where they lost Belle's mother to the plague, did we need the magic book scene? Probably not. Do I mind that we got a little bit more context as to what happened to her mother um, and why she is the way that she is? This, I thought, actually worked out just fine. I I was not personally adverse to this. It was the one piece of, like, actual backstory information that was like, oh, it's interesting now that, you know, we're set in a certain time. And that it, it in and of itself I thought was interesting my two issues were, firstly, if he had this magic book, like that's what should have been used to get her out of the castle to her dad at the end when she left, if it was such an emergency, instead of sending her running out the front door in her dress. And secondly, like just paired with the fact that they just, I feel like Disney was just like, throw dead parents at them, then people will understand. <laughs> well, what's Beast's backstory? Dead parents. <laughs> Just sprinkle dead parents all over the movie and we'll, we'll Disney, Disney-fy it. It could have been interesting, but it just felt lazy because it was just that it was just kind of what they added to everybody to make them sympathetic. I like how the Beast introduces the book through sarcasm. And he's like, oh, it's one of the other the other bag of tricks from the Enta the Enchantress. The only thing that I don't love about it, like backstory, OK, fine. But I feel like tonally, this takes such a shift and they try to dip their toes in the horror genre. Because when you see the mother in that bed, it's terrifying. And even the, the doctor's mask, like those are the things of nightmares. I guess you can argue that, OK, we're coming off of the war. We're supposed to know real time that plague was a huge issue. But I wish they would have just had a little bit more explanation there about how it was running rampant and why Maurice, I mean, obviously Maurice is trying to save his daughter. They do have the line from the mother, get her out of here before she gets it too. But 
I feel like if you're not familiar with the time period, you need a little bit more of an explanation as to how bad this is. And I mean, maybe that's a silly thing to say when we've just lived through it. But we did not just live through the Black Plague, not through the Black Plague, but through coronavirus. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that there's Which a was not the Black Plague. It was not the Black Plague. <laughs> no. But that fear of the contagion, I, I think they could have leaned into that a little bit more. And that's something that people would have understood. We're going to go back now a few minutes. I wanted to jump ahead because these were scenes that were not necessarily driven by anything more than these were just scenes in the movie. But I do want to go back to a few of the songs because we, we ta talked about them a little bit in the beginning, you know, the opening number and then, of course, Bell's song. But I want to go back and talk about starting from Gaston because now from from this point forward, other than those couple of scenes, the movie really is driven by the musical numbers, basically in in any other scene that we have here. Right, because the second act is sort of intercut between castle and town through these musical numbers. Right. Let's talk about Gaston, the musical number. Uh, before I okay, before I before I give my say on it, I'm going to toss it to you, Jackie, the Broadway file, because I want to hear what you have to say about it because I'm curious to see if my way of thinking is way off base here or not. Your silence speaks. <laughs> your silence says everything. I mean, I'm not afraid to be mean. I'm just trying to figure out, like, where to start. How do I unpack this? Because it's just so... <sighs> Maybe wrong is not fair, but it's like what we've been saying this whole time, is that there are so many of the right ingredients, they just didn't cook it the right way. Uh, I like the aesthetic of the tavern. I like that... This is where all of the townspeople are hanging out, especially because they plant Mr. Potts in there. Um, they did plant him in the opening number, and he's selling China, which I love. But I like that, you know, you see him as a single guy because he doesn't have a family to go home to, so he's just trying to, you know, hang out with the townspeople. It's what, it's what everybody's doing. I don't love that it is Gaston's tavern like he owns it. Like that was always sort of a nickname because it was like his spot. But now I don't necessarily buy that he's the proprietor of this tavern, which is all like minutia. I just think this was a big miss. I, I love Josh Gad's performance, but I think this was a big miss as far as the dancing, especially if you have been fortunate enough to see the Broadway play. Uh, they take the beer steins and they incorporate them into the choreography and into the music too, not just the dancing. Uh, so I was expecting something like that. If not even, I'm not suggesting that they rip off the play, but what I just would have loved was like a level of pageantry. Like I swear I saw a dragon and peach dragon with the beer shooting out all over the place and people rolling on the barrels and, something like that would have been fitting for this number yeah i mean it's the same well not the same but it's similar to my comments when we first started talking about the first scene if you're gonna go all in and be you know singing when you shouldn't be singing then everybody else should be kind of acting in kind not that they're not at all here it's much, certainly more so than it is 
in the um the town scene which also is kind of strange like juxtaposing the two like why is it happening here and not here i watched this scene with a smile on my face just because i enjoy josh gad so much you know that it's just it's one of the scenes in the movie where i can just kind of you know take myself a little less seriously and and just enjoy his performance um but yeah i mean everything that you're saying is obviously right I think it's a fun scene just because I enjoy watching him do it. I made, I referenced before there's a few places where I was a little taken aback <laughs> um, despite myself, but yeah, I mean, I, I have fun watching this scene, but I'm, I have a less educated eye than, than you two do. So maybe I can set it all aside a little bit more, at least in that one part. Well, you know what I think it is for me to go off of something you said just now, Lisa I like it more as a tavern sing-along and you get it like it's a tavern sing-along in the animated film. Like not that they sit there and sing Gaston three nights a week, but it's <laughs> not something that seems so forced. Like this entire thing just seems like it's a little too much. And I think that if it were more of that song that they're all at least in some way, shape or form familiar with, it could have made for a really, I mean, it, it's a fun scene, but it could have been a slam dunk of a scene. It could have been the scene that you hoped it was when you found out that Josh Gad was playing LeFou. No, and I wish I could set everything aside because I love Josh Gad, and yeah. that's where I truly wish that I could focus on it for what it is and not what I want it to be. For what it is, though, stripping everything else away and stripping away all of my criticisms, just story-wise... This is supposed to be LeFou building back up Gaston after he's been rejected by Belle. And I don't feel like you get that same, even though the song is about Gaston and the lyrics haven't changed that much, you don't get the same ego stroking the way you do in the animation. And I think that that's, that's supposed to be their relationship and that's what Gaston needs. And that does get lost in here. And he hasn't really been shot down to the same extent because there's no like... I'm going to show up like a marrying you situation in this one. Like she shoots him down, but she almost shoots him down a little stronger than is warranted from what he's saying. <laughs> it's not, it's, he, you know, I mean, I guess in a live action, you do have to tone things down a little bit, especially these days, but um, you, you, you lose a little bit of his um, initial enthusiasm about moving things along with the wedding. <laughs> So he's not quite in the same state at this point. I also think the set is cool. You know what stands out to me as being maybe the biggest miss of the scene? The chair. Yeah. He looks like he just took anybody's chair and sat in it. There is nothing special about that chair. The fact that you thought to make a dining location at the Magic Kingdom and make that kind of a centerpiece of that room because it's so iconic to that character how did you just put him in like anybody's chair in the film? Right. And he doesn't have all of his hunting trophies on the walls either. He doesn't, but they do have the chandeliers made out of the antlers. Like, I think the set build is fine, but he just came back from the war. He's bored. And yet he's a proprietor of this tavern and it's not doing anything for him. And he must be reminded of the war while he chases Belle in an average chair. There's just, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, a, like everything that they've done here just leaves you scratching your head. Be Our Guest now is, is the next big scene. I actually think, I thought Ewan McGregor was really, really good here. 
I thought he was great. I thought that it's never going to be the Jerry Orbach version, but but I didn't feel like it was worse either. My every issue I have with this is with the CGI. It's not with how he played it. There's if I have one criticism musically when Emma Thompson comes in and she's singing her part, the one thing I wish she would have done and I I mean far be it from me, who the hell am I to critique Emma Thompson? I wish that she would have um been a little poppier with how she sang it, a little bit more whimsical. Because when Angela Lansbury, you could tell she's really getting into it. And I'll be bubbling, I'll be brewing. And and here Emma Thompson sings it like very Broadway. I'll be bubbling, I'll be brewing. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't have that whimsy, that fun to it that we had in the original. But otherwise, CGI aside, I thought it was really good. I mean, I think it's visually stunning. I'm certainly not one to critique any of that. those actors or actresses. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a visually stunning, I mean, again, setting the CGI aside, like I've said before, I, I, I enjoy the scenes with these characters. Um, so, you know, I enjoyed watching them. I enjoyed, you know, visually, as far as the set was concerned, um, the scene itself is a little bit more confusing because like, again, there's a very dark situation (laughs) underlying all of this about these particular characters and you don't get like the tension with her leading up to this scene. So like, there's not a lot of emotion when she leaves her father. Like, as far as I feel like you would be able to give to a live action film where something of that level of depth is happening, like that scene just doesn't have a lot of depth to it. And then like, she's in this castle that's like effectively haunted, right? At least as far as that's how I would think of it at this stage of my visit. Um, It's not in such good shape. There's a beast who's just captured me I don't know that I would just like stroll up the stairs when I'm told to go elsewhere like they've offered her food already you know it's not like she's starving and scared she doesn't come across as like hungry and scared and needing this level of distraction in order to like get on with the situation instead it's like she seems relatively fine the staff is like about to die in a few days and they're like putting on this big performance to like serve her the gray stuff. So again, like visually I enjoyed it. Like, you know, obviously this cast is insanely amazing. Um, And so I enjoyed just sort of watching them play the roles. But as far as like whether the scene made sense to me anymore, probably a little less. You definitely hit on it because even though they're about to die in a few days, the big thing in the animation is that because there's not, you know, such a high stake in it for them, they just want to serve. That's their job. It's, it's what they miss about their life. You And d- it feels purposeful because they want yes. her to fall in love. Exactly. Like they want her to relax and calm down and feel comfortable in this place. And like, I don't get that level of like tension and like, where's my next meal coming from type feeling in this movie as I did. So it like it made sense that they were like over the top singing to her to like distract her and cheer her up and make her feel more at home in this place where they were hoping that she would fall in love and break the spell. You just don't I just don't get that vibe going into this scene for all the reasons I just said. Totally. No. And it's like a double whammy, because if they would have just had a little throwaway line of this could be our last 
big dinner, big show or whatever. It's, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's like the Muppets, you know, when they have to raise the money to save the theater, like they're going to give it all they got. I, I wish they would have just covered it in that way. As far as having it be fully CGI, I mean, there's so much CGI, like what else can you do at this point? Would I have loved to seen some sort of like Mary Poppins type of effects with the plates flying in and out? Sure. But I don't think that would have matched the CGI. This is where where I really miss and I really wish they would have done a face character with makeup because I feel like Ewan McGregor could have like stolen the show here or... And I think you did a fine job, but like, I don't know why I can't get Neil Patrick Harris doing Be Our Guest out of my head. I would have loved to see a world with like a big tap dancing number where he's in the full costume singing Be Our Guest. I don't know why. I'm just kind of stuck on that. And I think this is also another instance where Emma Watson falls really flat. She had a huge challenge because none of this is really happening in front of her. She's got to react to like a little marker. You know, and I, I hate to really tear it apart because of what the visual effects team did to pull this off. I mean, they spent days figuring out the camera angles within the computer and where they would have to position the camera on Emma Watson to be to achieve the shot. And then the lighting design, they brought in like theater experts to light the scene and figure out how it's going to bounce off of this cgi object once it's in the computer like there was so much work and i think they they took a week to shoot this so poor emma's got to sit there for a week trying to like react to all this stuff and i get it she was probably burnt out but like i feel that i feel that she didn't have that like magic in her and she wasn't enchanted by this because she was sort of burnt out by it 18 months they spent animating this from concept to rap it was two and a half years they took to make this scene. And like, listen, it's more talent than I have, but this is what you walked away with in two and a half years. You know, like there, there's just something here to be desired. And it's, it's not the fault of the cast. I don't even know that I blame Emma Watson for it. You know, like I get what you're saying. This is where the CGI really should. This is where it should be the star of the show. But you said before, Mary Poppins, this is a movie that at the time of this recording is nearly 60 years old and it still looks great. There is a continued thread here of movies that 30 years later, 40 years later, 60 years later, they still look good. Why? Why do they look better than something that came out 18 months ago? You know, obviously this was longer than that, but you get what I'm saying here. Like, there's just something here to be desired. But that's, again, it's me repeating myself. It's it's the problem with the entire movie is the CGI. No, and I feel like they even miss certain music cues where, like, the number is building and you didn't match the visual to it. One thing that I want to I just take a step. I think we have to take a step back and correct me if I'm wrong. But there's a scene that I think we missed that bears mentioning, and it's when Beast says like that she's the daughter of a thief yes like that's before it's like when he's saying why should i invite her to dinner right right and he says like what she's the daughter of a thief that's a really unlikable line why was that in there and then they're like oh you can't judge someone based on their father they were like trying to like tie it into his storyline with his like briefly mentioned mean dad 
Um, and I guess we were supposed to like see parallels between their lives or something like, but the dad, Boris wasn't a thief, wasn't a thief. Like Beast was just being a jerk about it. And like, he tried to trap him for his entire life, like for taking a rose. So it was a, it was a very strange line out of nowhere, incredibly unlikable. And like this just like bizarre, cheap attempt to connect it to like Beast's weird new storyline. And correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't that happen before we even know what the Beast's new storyline is? It does, because he, that's it. Maurice wants to take the rose for Belle because they tried to use a rose as symbolism as if we don't get it enough already. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason that he locked him up. So if they would have maybe developed Belle and the Beast relationship a little bit more off of the misconception where she's trying to defend her father and then maybe you layer in that story of the Beast not getting along with his father and she sort of helps him see the light, then it would have been effective. But again, they just felt like lazy. It's like, oh, well, we just mentioned that he is a jerk who's a dad. So like, why don't we make him think she is a jerk? But it's not like he was connecting with her for that reason. She was like, he was rejecting her because you had a father who's a thief. So, yeah, I just, I, I thought that bore mentioning because it was just, it was the strangest. And, and I think you're right. I think it is reverse because when I rewatch, when I, because I, it's been forever since I've watched this for, you can probably tell why. <laughs> <laughs> Not one that I just flip on when I'm bored. Flip it on when you want to go to sleep. <laughs> but you're right. When I was rewatching it, I, I I was when he first said it and he made the reference. I was like, is there something I'm supposed to be remembering or connecting here when he says don't judge people based on their fathers like knowingly? This is strange addition. And again, like something that could have been so much more interesting. Anyway, onward. I'm sorry. No, it's no, okay. no, that's that's good. No, it, and it's I'm glad that you brought it up because I I had forgotten about that myself. Uh-huh. Which is strange because when we watched it the second time around this week in preparation for the show, I, I thought, well, wait a minute. Why did they plant that here? Why didn't they plant this 10 minutes from now, this line? It right. would have made a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm actually really glad that you brought it up, too, because one of my biggest gripes with this movie is the relationship or lack thereof that is developing between Belle and the Beast. And I think this would have been a good foundation if they had been able to bond over it. Mm-hmm. Instead, they bond over books. Okay, great. Of course, we need the library scene. We need that big reveal. We need a gorgeous That's, library. My biggest problem with this whole movie is the library scene. It's it's not magic. The library scene is the most beautiful, yes. romantic. Yes. To a girl who grew up loving books, when he gives her that library, that it's like... I have a candle called Beast Library. I mean, it's like, it's the scene is like so iconic and so powerful. And like the gift of that library is like what every little girl dreams of who loves to read, right? They haven't even connected on that level yet. Yes. He's like, oh, you like to read? Why don't you read? I got a couple in here. Yeah. And she walks in and she's like looking around and he's like, oh, do you like it? You can have it. I mean, it was all of the emotion and meaning behind the gift was gone. He was like, oh, there's a couple of books here. It's not like he knows he has this wonderful thing that he's gifting to her because she loves it. Exactly. Um, Or they develop that aspect of their relationship. And then she starts reading and they talk. Exactly. To piggyback off of what Lisa was saying, this was, you know, to the larger point that I was making about how clunky this relationship is as they're trying to develop it. It's just like, yeah, here you go. Here's the library. And they start sort of bonding over the books 
And here's where I really miss the wingman element of the other characters because they, you know, maybe it it works more in the animation because the beast was 11 when he got cursed. So he's not going to know how to interact with a woman. But even here still, he didn't have the best people skills because that's why Agatha showed up because he was not the nicest person so you do still need that element of Lumiere Cogsworth and Potts coaxing him along and they're not really doing that nor are they pushing Belle to spend time with him it's just oh you like to read I like to read here's a book and she reads aloud and that's really it you get something there and they give us all that wasn't of, there before. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they're giving us all of the scenes that we know from the animation in that number. They're all there. The snowball, him trying to, you know, have some table manners and her meeting him halfway by not using a spoon. OK, fine. But the problem is they haven't bonded really over anything other than her reading aloud they are just spending time together but the relationship doesn't deepen and you had the potential to do that with the daddy issues and they never do so for me by the time we are supposed to be getting ready for the big ballroom scene this is nothing more than a Stockholm syndrome there is nothing to me that says the beast is softening where she should be falling for him i mean it just seems like she literally does like it better than where she came from like this is a nicer place than what i left is literally how it feels it's not like there's anything with beast right it's just like this is a much nicer environment than the town i came from even like the big turning point to me of the original is the wolf scene when he when he saves her when she's trying to escape and she goes you know and she helps him and that's to me, that's like the te- the scene where everything seems like it softens yes. between them. And this time around, it felt more like she's about to get on the horse and then she's like, oh, morally, I probably should be taking him back in. So yeah, like you don't get the depth of those. And again, like you're talking about what they were able to accomplish with animation many years ago versus live action today. So you really could have pulled more depth from it versus the reverse. I do love that they address the elephant in the room where she gets him onto Philippe because I remember as a kid, my mom was always, when we watched it, she was always like, how did Belle get the beast onto the horse? And she does say, I need you to help me. I need you to stand up. So mm-hmm. I like that. That is one wrong that they were able to write. It, probably the only one wrong that existed in that entire movie. But True. they got it right. Your mother was appeased. She can sleep at night. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned the Stockholm Syndrome thing, too, because this was like something that came up during the production of this movie to the and like it was sort of controversial. Emma Watson actually researched Stockholm Syndrome to see if that's what Bell was suffering from. No kidding. Yeah. So apparently this, I guess, was an issue in the early stages when they were doing table reads, I guess. I don't know. Or when they read the script, but she actually did research on it to see if Belle is like to see like did Belle make it like an independent decision or is she just suffering from Stockholm syndrome this entire time? She seems to have arrived at a very convenient conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) 
to be so careful these days though. I mean, if I was going to remake Beauty and the Beast, I certainly would give it, you know, a second thought based on, you know, the nature of the relationship. They just don't do enough to get out of it though. No. Even with the added scene, it's still not enough. Like I see what they were trying to do, but that's really the last element before we get to the dance. Right. Now, one scene that they did add in was Days in the Sun. We mentioned it before. That was the song that they sing. I I think it's such a great song for that ensemble cast. Going into seeing this film the first time, I didn't feel personally that I needed to feel worse for these characters, but I think it did add a really wonderful dramatic layer. And I love the fact that we did get a look into their past. Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, I think that, yeah, like I keep saying, you know, if anything came out of this, it was like just how much more humanized the staff were and just understanding like just the nature of their predicament and even how much worse it was in this movie than in the first one. No, and that's where you really feel the weight of it as they're getting the beast ready and they're completely invested and they really do need this to work. For sure, because then you get something there, which we basically just talked about the entire scene. I think that this this actually worked a lot. I thought that this particular song they did well. I think most of the songs they did well. Um, but, I mean, we basically just talked about the entire scene and how they're trying to flourish the relationship. Again, musically it works, but the way that they're trying to flourish this relationship if you're sitting here wondering, is it real or is it Stockholm Syndrome? I think that kind of answers the question about whether or not they accomplished what they were trying to do in this film. Now we get the scene where, right before the dance, where they commit Maurice. Right. This is just my opinion. This, to me, is where Gaston is finally convincing. I said it earlier, he's a little too theatrical, he's a little too breathy, they... Uh, I thought that they took a lot of what was funny about him out of it. But in this scene, if you're trying to do a live action villain and you're trying to really make him an antagonist, this is where I think that scene worked to accomplish that. I also like that we get more definition from LeFou because they throw it to him and he doesn't tell the truth. You really just see the sociopathic Gaston in this scene. Like, you wouldn't last a week in there, you know, let me marry your daughter. <laughs> um, I mean, he's he's scary in that scene. I do think he's scary in that scene. And yeah, and again, you don't get any, like, you, you had that that reaction before from LeFou. Not seeing any payoff with him was disappointing. Let's talk about payoff or perhaps lack thereof. Because we're at the scene, okay? It's the dance. It's the title track from the movie. Uh, this is another one that kind of has me stumped. I go back and forth. We'll start with Belle because the dress is a point of contention, right? I think that they got that right. I wasn't expecting it to be the exact same as the animation because it's so poofy. She has to be able to move in it. They have to be able to dance, especially because you've got Dan Stevens on stilts. So she's got to be able to work around that. And it's so iconic. I mean, there's there's not too much that you can do that wouldn't have pissed people off. I like that they wove the gold into that and they even incorporated it in her jewelry and they sort of gave her like a 
rose thorn with the necklace, with the earring and her hair. Uh, I think that was that was all really well done. I like that it was a more traditional dance. So I think that stayed true to the time period and everything that they were going for in the movie. Um, I love the added chandeliers. Instead of having just one, you get like seven or eight of them. I think that was really cool. I like the aesthetic of the ballroom. I love the way Emma Thompson sings it. I think she definitely, she's not Angela Lansbury, but I think she did the song of justice. I like the slight change they made where they do the lift and the ceiling sort of sparkle. Like now it feels like we're in an enchanted castle. It feels like the house is working and the staff is working to push these two together. So I think that that was a good ad there. Um, and I won't say too much more because I know what your gripe was with this scene. So I, I will let it go. So here's my big thing. To to agree with something that you said, um, Emma Thompson killed it. She was spectacular. I'd say she was just about as good as Angela Lansbury, if I'm being honest with you. Emma Watson, I mean, look, you can't have her tripping over tool, right? I mean, they had to (laughs) trim down the dress, but I thought she looked the part. I thought her sight lines were excellent. I I felt that that was really well done. I agree going with the traditional waltz and a lot of those decisions worked. This is my biggest problem with this scene. And I don't care if it sounds petty, this ruined the entire movie for me. If the CGI wasn't bad enough, if the changes they made weren't bad enough, this is what you could have done all of those things. And if you would have hit this one thing, if you would have hit this one beat, I would have at least walked away and I would have said, they got this right. And I mentioned it when we did our Lion King review. You didn't do the chandelier shot. I know that there's 10 of them now, but that chandelier shot, I mean, I'll mention it again, almost at nauseum. The animated version of this film was nominated for Best Picture. It is a animation achievement. It's a marvel, and it's timeless, and it's perfect. Missing that chandelier shot, which is by far the most iconic shot in the movie, and I'd go so far as to say one of the most iconic shots in cinema, this would be like, and don't think they won't do it eventually, if you remade E.T. and you skipped the bike in front of the moon. That's how egregious this is, that they just skipped it. How do you miss the most iconic shot in the movie? This, to me, is where it completely falls apart. It's a tough act to follow. (laughs) (laughs) My my enjoyment of this scene is very simple. Yeah, it would have been amazing to have that that shot. But, you know, the simple fact that Emma Thompson rocked it and, like, just beyond nailed such an... I mean, what a challenge. Like, what an incredible thing um, to see happen. Like, because Angela Lansbury, it was just such an iconic song. And the fact that she, to some extent, made it her own and just blew it out of the water. I just enjoyed so much. And I, I have no issue with the way she was dressed. Um, I thought her dress was beautiful. I think it would have been, you know, it, first of all, I don't think it would have been period appropriate. And and also, um, 
wildly impractical and it just wouldn't have looked right on screen to have her on in this thing that you know would have had the beast be eight feet away from her because her skirt was so big i like that they lost the gloves yes um i I really like that they lost the gloves um the like ear cuff and stuff like you said that they added i thought was cool i thought it kind of gave it a little bit more of a contemporary feel and um i just thought it was a beautiful scene and um you know given the fact that Emma Thompson blew it out of the water, like I didn't have that much else that I felt like I had the right to ask for. <laughs> they do. But I validate your, your, your irritation with the scene. So. <laughs> you act or you sound like the, they ignored the chandelier altogether. They do have it. It's just not the same music cue and it doesn't come down into the ballroom. It goes up. I, I, I'm not saying that you're wrong or that your feelings are invalid when it comes because it, it is a big miss, but they didn't leave them out altogether. How would you feel if they remade The Wizard of Oz and changed the song to Follow the Broken Sidewalk? Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like that's To me, that's, that's the miss. I'll tell you something, too. When you get out of this scene, this is where she sees her father in the mirror and she sees what's happening to him and the beast makes the difficult decision to just let her go, even though he's damning his household and himself. Um, Mm -hmm. He makes that decision to let her go. It's a powerful moment that is completely hosed down when she goes to leave the house and the doors swing open and you see the track and the wheels that the door is on. Did anybody else notice that when she goes out the front door, that when those doors just magically open, you can see the track and the wheels? I totally missed it. I remember it looking awkward, but I don't know if I was noticing anything like that. I I, I, I think I remember just being surprised that, like, why did the doors open? The doors weren't characters. I get so distracted because she's had Philippe the whole time. So how did Maurice get back? Maurice got back with Agatha. It was Agatha all along. (laughs) (laughs) No, but how did he get to Agatha? (laughs) She found him tied to the tree after Gaston punched him. But the first time I'm saying, how did he get back? Because... After the treat, that's the second time he leaves the town. He goes from the Beast Castle, bursts into the tavern during or right after the Gaston number to tell them where Belle is. Then he goes with Gaston and LeFou and they leave him tied to the tree. So Belle has had, since she switched places, she's had Philippe. In the animation, the Beast has... That's the other thing. We've been talking about the characters so much. We haven't mentioned how few of them there are. And when the stakes are so big, we're supposed to have an entire staff, a, an entire house, and and enough staff to work this big castle. And there's the, the three mains, Chip, the wardrobe, the maestro, who is an ad. We have to talk about him. The footstool, the and the uh, coat rack. There's a lot more. Okay, the kitchen comes to life and be our and be our guest. But the, my point being, in the animation, there is a carriage that takes Maurice back to the town. It's an enchanted carriage. And my bigger gripe, besides not knowing how Maurice gets back, is that you need to like beef up the staff so that they're ready to fight this battle with the townspeople. I am jumping ahead a little bit because. I want to talk about um, 
Gaston's last big song, Kill the Beast. Um, I love this number in the animation. I love the these crazy people with the pitchforks storming the castle. Um, I feel like they watered it down a little bit here, though. Yeah, I mean, the mob song, I honestly, I think this is the superior Gaston performance. I like him more in this than I did I in Gaston. Um, I just wonder... I, I don't know if it's watered down so much as it is because I I get what you're I get what you're saying and I kind of am having problems putting to words what the exact problem is I think perhaps it's that I mentioned before that at times it feels like they're trying to shoot the Broadway show but for a movie screen and, and they're just missing something I think that that's kind of what this falls victim to I think because the entire time everybody's saying that Maurice is crazy. And then once Belle comes back with the mirror, they see that there's a beast, but I think they buy into it too quickly. Whereas Gaston has to rally them a little bit more in the animation. He says like two lines here. So I don't feel like the fear is really instilled quite the same way. Just strange. I mean, their family members work in this castle and they've been gone. And then there's like a beast in the castle. I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, unless the enchantress literally just wiped their minds, which is, I guess, what happened. She did. It's hard to get excited. He's like riding, and he's like, they're like riding the horses like pretty slow yeah. for like the amount of tension and urgency that's <laughs> supposed to be the case. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed him. And I, I, I really, I love the lyrics to that song. I think he did them really, really well. I do too. I think they, they cut some of them though towards the end of the I feel like it's shorter I feel like they missed um what is it the part we'll save our children and our lives it's it's like one of the last verses I think they cut it there was one song that we did jump that I want to go back to the song right before this evermore which is the song that the beast sings yes um, this actually did get nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards this year. So yeah, somewhere in here, there was an Oscar nomination. And it came from this song, and I think that that is completely justified. They did such a good job. Dan Stevens was so good. He did such a great job. It looks like a video game because you know why but the song itself is so powerful this i think was probably the biggest surprise of the movie was getting this song i agree i actually really like this song it this feels like a huge broadway number and it should because you know the beast doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve so it's nice to be able to hear exactly how he's feeling i mean it it's definitely something that they tried to do to separate this character and build on the character more so than in the animation and i think it does sort of redeem that we haven't got much more out of him other than i like to read as far as how much he cares for bell so i think it i think it was smart story wise and i i really love the song i just wish the animation matched how powerful the vocal is yeah, I mean, it was nice at least to have one moment where we really like sat with the depth of what was going on, like because obviously he's just let her go. And like we keep talking about like the 
in this movie, the seriousness of that decision is even the stakes of that are much higher than they were in the animated version. So I enjoyed that they took a minute to like be with that moment. We don't have like that roaring, passionate, like raw beast that I talked about before. Um, I personally, I, I wish I was singing the song after the movie. Like I, I, I appreciate the artistry of it when I'm watching it, but it's just for whatever reason, and it might just be me. Like, I don't find myself like humming it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't hum it, which probably speaks volumes. Um, it has a very like Les Mis vibe. Yes. Let's talk about the scene where they do break down the doors of the castle and they start fighting with the staff. The eight of them. Yeah. It's so jarring to me that you have a movie that they have made so dark, which is fine. I don't mind the fact that they made it a dark film, but the Hanna-Barbera boxing ring sound effects when LeFou is going to fight the coat rack is just so out of place and ridiculous. Not as ridiculous as what ended up, thankfully, on the cutting room floor. They added a character... Oh, yeah. Ugh. Monsieur Toilette, they called him. And there is a whole scene with LeFou fighting in the bathroom. So <laughs> that was a decision that they made for the better, leaving that alone. I miss... Th this is where you really miss the cartooniness of the animation. Because I, I know you're saying... Well, it's the Hanna-Barbera sound effects, but I wouldn't have minded if they went for like a really cartoony sort of fight. And I, I wish that our mains would have had a little bit more screen time in here. Like you have Cogsworth. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie actually, is he calls the three villagers, the third rate musketeers. I wish they would have leaned into that a little bit more and like stretched that out. Um, I like when LeFou does eventually flip and he starts, he realizes that, um, you know, Gaston's not who he thought he was and he starts fighting with Mrs. Potts. Uh, so I think that's good, but it was just lacking, lacking the whimsy. Yeah, it was de definitely lacking whimsy. First of all, like th that new character and then apparently like they had a spouse up, like why did they never see each other? I don't, like your wife is upstairs trying to stay awake. That line, it was like, it's a little weird. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, why did you not see each other? It was bizarre because it was like very like silly in the way some of it was being filmed, but it was very dark because it was the one time where, again, the waitstaff is about to die and they literally, much more so I think than the animated version, are sacrificing themselves. I mean, yes. they're literally pulling themselves apart to use uh, like their bodies as weapons. Um, and it's almost like a suicide mission which I thought was really interesting that they were playing that out, but they didn't lean completely into it again, but I thought it was interesting. I do like though that their battle scars carry through when they do eventually turn back like the, um, the maestro, he shoots the piano keys out and then Stanley <laughs> Tucci later is missing some teeth. So I thought that right. was clever. Yeah. 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 Very. We get now to the point of the film where Gaston has, track down the beast. I mean, he, he shoots him a number of times, um, which I'm kind of surprised they went for it more than once in this film. Um, 
I've, you'd think once would be enough, but it's it's multiple times, which I remember being surprised at when we saw it the first time, and then surprised even more so when we did the rewatch of it. The only thing that really fails for me here is how long Gaston is going to stand on that bridge as it's falling apart before he realizes it's falling apart and, oh, it's too late. I thought they dragged that on just way too much. It's one thing to do it in an animated film, but to see it in live action, it just that doesn't translate. You don't get that pause leeway that you get in animation where you get to like kind of hold things in midair for a second. The big... Just the fact that he shot him I thought was very strange. I mean, I guess they were further apart just because of the way the scene played out. He like jumped to her first and then I guess you can't stab from there. But I, I mean, these days, whenever you switch to going with a gun, I'm surprised, at least in this kind of movie. I agree. I was kind of surprised, not necessarily that they used a gun because we covered it. He's a war hero, so I'll buy that. But it was a bit gratuitous. And I'm I'm not saying like I'm offended by it or anything, but like three shots was kind of a lot. What bothers me more than anything else about this scene is that what I love in the animation is that the beast is soul crushed. Not not that I want to see his feelings hurt, but like he's got no fight in him. And it makes it so easy for Gaston to catch up because Gaston should not be able to best him. And Mm -hmm. it really speaks to how heartbroken he is over losing Belle. And here he's just wandering around. It's he did test her. He let her go. And he's you know, he sings his whole song about I'm going to be waiting at my window looking for you. I feel like he's just waiting to see if she passes the test and if she does have feelings for him too. And Gaston is such an afterthought. I really wish that we would have had that more heartbroken beast. And then he turns when Belle does come back and and then really fights off Gaston because you don't even have much of that turn. He's like, you came back and nothing. When the staff turns into inanimate objects, you know, permanently or what we think is going to be permanently, it's actually quite sad to see them turn. And I think that that's really a compliment to the cast more than it is how they animated the scene. The Beast's transformation is fine. When he transforms back into human form, it's fine. It it plays out similar to how it plays out in the animated film, except his back is turned in this film, in, in this version, and then he turns to you know, show Bell what he really looks like. But the rest of them, when they turn, it's like this is where the film ran out of money. Like, <laughs> all, it's like the camera spins and all of a sudden there they are looking ridiculous. Like, Ewan McGregor, he sounds like he's dubbed over, even though we know it's him. Like, just, like, what he's saying is not matching his mouth. It, like, I feel like they had to dub him over and pour... Ian McKellen, he just, he looks ridiculous. He's very funny when you see him back in human form, but he looks ridiculous. Their transformation back to human form, it, it's just odd. It's so strange. And it's kind of lackluster. Like, I miss that big celebration because even the beast embraces all of them and he gets so excited that, you know, they made it out. And I feel like you lose a little bit of that. I mean, obviously, you get the moment with Belle. 
I like that they cut the it is you line that never sat well with me. Like, uh, who was it going to be? You just watched him transform. I realize you're seeing it in his eyes, but I'm I'm glad they actually axed that one. But I feel like because you bring the townspeople back in, you're missing, again, the relationships between these people who are supposed to be friends because of what they've been through. Yeah, I mean... First, well, just going back a split second since I'm catching up, um, you know, the fact that they let them die, because that doesn't happen, obviously, in the original. In the original, she says, I love you in time. Right. Um, and in this one, they actually do go. And that scene is rough. Like, it's very well done, acted, like you said, um, written, acted, you know, whatever else is going on on the screen is fine. Um but I, that that scene is heartbreaking, especially when they go to Mrs. Potts and Chip. Like oh. I, I get act like li- really actually choke lift up. That's a very hard scene to watch. Um, <clears throat> so I thought that was beautifully done. Um, but then from there on out, it got a little strange. Like the fact that again, she they, they didn't she didn't say it in time. So like the enchantress is like randomly there, right? She just shows up again, and she's like, oh yeah, no, never mind about that pedal. Like I'll just undo it all. So she's kind of like orchestrated all of that. And then she, and then you're seeing her like watching over as, you know, they, they change back and you're seeing her watching over as everybody's like reuniting with this like peaceful smile on her face. Well, she just did like a really twisted thing. Like again, full circle back to the beginning of this conversation. Like that's the moment where I'm thinking like, this is a villain, like this enchantress is a villain. So yeah, I, I think um, I, that the scene where they're dying is very well done, I thought. Like visually, whatever, but just as far as acted and written, I thought it was was really well done. Um, and then from there on out, like like you said, bringing in the people from the town is a little bit distracting, um, and it doesn't seem like quite big enough. Other than again, not surprisingly, Chip and Mrs. Potts, like that scene, I thought was very touching when they're real again, because again, it's Emma Thompson and it's perfectly done. Now you get the final scene in the movie where you get like the reprise of Beauty and the Beast and the Beast in human form growls at her lovingly like you do when she asked if if he would uh, grow a beard. And I didn't mention it earlier, but I have to mention it. What the hell is Stanley Tucci doing with his face? He's not just in this, <laughs> not just in this scene, but in the first scene of the movie. And he's so wildly talented, but I don't know. He's like spastically emoting things. <laughs> and I don't understand why. It's very cartoony. Yeah. I do love this reprise, though, because we got new lyrics from Howard Ashman. So mm-hmm. I think that is such a nice touch that they got to see the light of day and what's also significant about this because i mean at this point we've basically fleshed out all of the characters so there's no sub conversation that's going to happen about characters at this point but i do want to bring up in this scene and it's very quick but it was viewed as a very progressive step for disney is is with lefou in this scene where he dances with stanley and it's a three second scene but it meant a lot to a lot of people to see Disney put themselves out there willing to do this, willing to show representation and show, you know, such a diverse cast. And I remember so many people championed for it. And I think that that still holds up in this scene as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that scene made all the right people angry, right? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, bravo to that. Well, well done at the time, and and it and it holds up perfectly. It's 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 not in your face. It's not overdone. God willing, fifty years from now, when mindsets across the board are much different, that scene will still just be a scene. Yeah. I think it also works for LeFou too, like where they didn't necessarily complete the arc as far as mm-hmm. him figuring out what's right and wrong and completely committing to being you know on the, on the good side if we're just drawing the line between good and evil because they didn't fully develop that I like that we got a complete arc in a different way I love how I, I love that they did do it I love how they did it it's in a way that's not preachy as you said not in your face and I'm happy that it didn't change the story because I think that that's where people would have taken issue with it um as you said all the people all the it made all the right people angry those people would have taken away from all the good that Disney did do so I like that it's acknowledged but you're not you're shining a light the right way and and not giving people a reason to tear this down and it almost is enough of a very nuanced full arc because if you think about it, Gaston is now dead. Right. And his entire life has rotated around this man that he's been infatuated with. So even that very slight three-second moment of him dancing with another man and looking interested is like that's the arc. Yes. Like that he's not a wreck, you know, and incapacitated by grief over Gaston's death, that he's out and about and doing well and has this quick moment with another man. It's like, okay, he's going to be all right. And that's, that's, that's like enough of the arc. It almost parallels the inanimate objects because he's free now too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll just say that on rewatch, it was interesting to me because the last time when we were talking about Lion King, my big thing was that Scar's movie, it was Scar's movie. And I feel almost like this movie was the house servants movie. Yes. And it's like, that's like, and, 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 it very similarly, like when Lion King had merit for me was when I realized that it was an interesting movie from Scar's perspective. I feel like this movie gets merit. Setting aside everything we just said, I feel like the the merit that this movie has is thinking of it as the House Servants movie. Yes. There's a lot of, you know, there's faults in execution and, and whatever, but I think the movie is way more interesting when you focus on that perspective. So I think that's the perfect segue to our final thoughts on the movie. And at least it sounds like you gave, I'm not going to say all your final thoughts, but you gave a big chunk of your final thoughts. So in wrapping it up, what are your final thoughts? What's your final review here on this live action remake of Beauty and the Beast? I mean, I I think, you know, as my final thoughts, I would just say that, um, you know, first of all, I don't hate this movie nearly as much as it probably just sounded like I did. You know, there were some brilliant acts. There was some, you know, Emma Thompson, you know, so many, there were, there were many things in this movie that were well executed and that I, that I can <clears throat> set aside my inner critic and just uh, enjoy on face value in watching this. It's certainly not a movie that I put on, like, just because Disney Plus is in the background while I'm working. It's, it's not a movie I put on often. I haven't seen it in a really long time. That said, like, there are scenes I smile through. There are scenes that I think are well done. And I do, I think like as Disney has tiptoed into the, our generation's movies that were already very well developed, you start to have to wonder why these live action movies are happening. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think these are very difficult movies to execute well because of what they're based on. And um, yeah, I, I don't hate this movie nearly as much as it probably just sounded like I did. And and again, I'll just reiterate, like thinking about, about it from the perspective of the house staff is much more interesting to me than any other angle. Very similar to how I felt about Scar with the Lion King. That is a really great take on it. And it, it certainly makes it more interesting to think about it from from their perspective. I don't hate this movie nearly as much as I did on the first go around. I'm not saying that it has rewatchability, but the more we've watched, the more elements I'm finding where I do see what they tried to do and I can sort of appreciate it more. Did a lot of those changes work out? No, not at all. Were they worth doing? Not really. But I definitely think that it's gotten better with each viewing. That said, is this my favorite? No, it's certainly not their best as far as the live action remakes go. Uh, I don't think that it does a justice to the animation at all. I'm, But the animation set the bar impossibly high because that is a perfect film. So trying to take the fan out of it and just looking at the movie as it stands on its own, I mean, I think there are a few problematic story issues that they never really bounce back on. Um, I think the CGI is terrible for the most part. But I think that the musical numbers do sort of redeem it in a way. So it's tough for me because I've gone on record and have said that I think this is, of all of the live-action remakes, not including the sequels, just just the regular straight live-action remakes, I've gone on record and I've said that it's my opinion that this one is by far the worst. And I'm going to be honest, my opinion hasn't really changed. Where I get conflicted on that is because I like the cast. I like the costumes. Yeah. I like the sets. I like the music. But but yet it misses so badly. When it misses, it misses immensely. Um, I, I think that, it, and it's only my opinion, I think it's you can make a case for perhaps Alice in Wonderland it is worse than this, but my issues with Alice in Wonderland are more that Burton tried to out-Burton himself. <laughs> the rest of them, I, I, while they have their faults, I don't find them to be nearly as egregious. I, I, I haven't found one that I like perhaps as much as I liked Cinderella. No, well, Lady and the Tramp was very close. Mm -hmm. uh, those, I think, are the best two. I, I thought Maleficent and Cruella were great as well. But there's just something about this that is just not working. And I think it I, I, I'll call myself out as being biased in this case. Because you tried to tackle this film, you tried to tackle this movie. It's like remaking Jaws. Don't do it. They probably will. I said before, they'll probably remake E.T. Don't do it. There are just certain movies that are just so good and so timeless. I don't think you should tackle them. 
I've gone on and I've said that I don't think we need more live-action remakes. I stand by that. I would rather see live-action villain films give us the backstory of a villain. I, I'd rather see more Maleficence and Cruellas than Beauty and the Beasts, Aladdins, and Lion Kings. But that's 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 where I'm at with this. And we're interested in knowing what you have to say about the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Lisa Donato-Glasner, thank you so much for joining us again. Please let everyone know where they can find you, where they can get to the castle run, and, and please... Where they can buy the most amazing candles. Yes, the core memory candles. Well, thank you for having me back. And for those of you still listening after us ranting for several hours, <laughs> um, you can find me on my blog at thecastlerun.com where I talk about my life here in Walt Disney World um, and as a mother and runner and regular person who lives a mile from the magic. Um, I'm also on Instagram as the castle runner and you can go to corememorycandles.com for my candle collection, which is all disney inspired scents that are made to be beautiful in your home whether you are a disney fan or not you can also go to the shop tab on the castle run to, to get to the same place and you are also please correct me if i'm wrong uh you're gonna run dopey and you are doing a fundraiser yes so i can give you that link if you would like yes, yes. Um, yeah so um i am a runner and i run all of the Disney races, the run Disney races here on property. And I'm super, super excited because I am running my fourth dopey challenge this year, wow. which is 48.6 miles over the course of four days. It's a huge challenge and a lot of fun. Um, but for the very first time this year, I am teaming up with um, Give Kids the World, which is the um, resort here on um, uh, at Walt Disney World. It's 89 acres and dedicated completely to offering cost-free vacation to Make-A-Wish kids and kids from many, many other foundations around the world. Um, but those Make-A-Wish kids that come to Disney World, that's where they're staying. Um, and my run is going to be benefiting um, Give Kids the World in their efforts to make that happen for families. That's awesome. Yeah, we will definitely put that uh, the link up on the social media. Again, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. So for anybody that wants to contribute, you can find it there. And again, Lisa, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for mentioning that. That means the world. Oh, it's our pleasure. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. We are fresh off of a Disney trip, and I am happy to share my first-hand experience with all things Disney 50. Uh, Genie Plus, we got to try that out too. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. With the holidays coming, Kelly has amazing amazing product available whether it's a mug an art print stationary greeting cards home decor or apparel she has some really impressive impressive products including a gertie holiday card 
like we are singing its praises, but it has to be seen. I love Gertie any day, but I love Gertie in the Santa hat with her little ornament. And Kelly has captured that in a holiday card. It's amazing. And you can save 10% on that purchase using the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see all of those wonderful products at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Let's start, speaking of holidays, with it's become a a long, time-honored tradition of enjoying Disney programming around the holidays. I feel like it keeps getting bigger every year. Yeah, I remember when it was just the Christmas parade, and now it's like spilling into these other specials, which by all means, I'm absolutely fine with. Oh, for sure. I mean, what was the point of doing Disney Plus otherwise if you're not going to have additional holiday content? Right. So we have uh, this not coming. Well, it probably will go to Disney Plus eventually because everything does. But we have the wonderful world of Disney uh, magical holiday celebration that's actually going to be this Sunday at 7 p.m. on ABC hosted by Derek and Julianne Huff, who have kind of like become like the go-to hosts for anything that they're doing related to Disney around the holidays. They are very much longtime fans, and it doesn't hurt that they were on Dancing with the Stars, too. It's all kind of one big ABC conglomeration. Yeah, and Ariana DeBose is going to join them as well for that show. And then they are hosting the Christmas Parade again. That is going to be on ABC on Christmas Day at 10 a.m. So hope you like the Huffs. Walt Disney Television also announced that they have hired Brian Noon as the president of entertainment. He is formerly the VP of original programming, original series at Netflix. And if you watch, I mean, really Netflix kind of set the table for original programming when it came to a streamer. I think the fact that Disney is investing so much in Disney Plus right now, it only makes sense that they would bring him in. And I actually think this is the right move to make. I agree. What I hope they are doing is following a pattern that has proven to be successful in the past. Historically, if we look back to the 90s, when the studios were kind of in dire straits, they brought in Michael Eisner because he had all of this experience working within the Hollywood studio system. And they were hoping that maybe what he didn't have as far as the business expertise in other areas, they wanted somebody who would have that expertise in the films. That's exactly what they needed at the time. Now, does Disney Plus need that same kind of help? No, absolutely not. But why wouldn't you hire someone who has expertise in this area, especially because if they're going to look to JPEG to help Disney Plus, they are sadly mistaken. Yeah, especially, I, I think they recently announced something like $33 billion they are committing to programming for Disney Plus in the foreseeable future. So you're investing that much into it. It would only make sense that you're going to bring in somebody of this caliber, for Absolutely. sure. All right, let's talk about the D23 Destination D event this past weekend at Walt Disney World. Uh, we missed it by a week. Not even. Six days. We missed it by six days, which has kind of become the norm for us. We seem to miss things <laughs> anywhere between six and like 14 days, whether it's this or the opening of Rise of the Resistance or the Candlelight Processional. We're going to write that wrong in 2022. I got to tell you, though, 
it's not like we missed the big expo, right? We're planning right. on going to the expo in 2022. So I wasn't that sour about it. It was just the small margin that gets me. Yeah. I'm not bummed that we missed it all together because quite honestly, I wasn't expecting any earth shattering announcements. And honestly, we didn't get any. What we basically no. got was, you see that? That's going to open. That was basically, for the most part, the entire Destination D event. Right. Most of this stuff was announced already, and we knew it was coming in 2022. And I think everybody's sort of given that a pass because of the pandemic. And we were like, all right, when it gets here, it gets here. So instead of... I don't know, taking the year that you had to really pinpoint when some of these projects are opening, they've narrowed the window to months for us now. So instead of the whole range of 2022, we now have summer or fall that things are opening. Yeah, it's a very Disney thing to do. I just, I want a hard date on Tron because we're going to review it before the ride opens. I just want to be able to plan our schedule. They haven't even, they didn't even, Tron wasn't even a thing they really talked about. Awesome. Guardians is opening summer 2022 because, yeah, we knew that. Um, Connections Cafe and Eatery. This is coming to Epcot Center. It is replacing the Electric Umbrella. It's going to be a quick serve restaurant. They gave us the name. And that's not a surprise. I mean, you kind of have to replace quick serve with quick serve. And you did just add Space 220, so... You're going to put another sit-down restaurant in that park? No. No. And I think it's smart to have one in that section at the front of the park. I think it's going to alleviate a lot of the F&D pressure really on that side of the park. Because other than World Showcase, there's just not much going on there in terms of food and beverage in that front part of the park. Right. But you need at least one. I mean, everybody assumes you're going to knock out the front of the park in the morning and then go do World Showcase around lunchtime. That way you have lunch and dinner back there. But... You still need something. Epcot is aiming to be completed. They say it will be completed, but I'm not going to hold my breath on this. In 2023. So you gave us a 12-month window. Thank you, Disney. Um, We have new music and a new score being written by Pinar Toprak, um, which, I mean, at this point, there's, there's so little that you could do to surprise me at this point. I just hope that the score and the music is as good as the music was in Epcot for so very long. I think that's the big challenge here because it's not like Magic Kingdom where you're constantly remixing the songs from the films. That's what you expect. This was here really through an entire lifetime, at least for us, you know? So that's going to be a very hard one to let go that, we not only grew up on it, but we've had it for all of our adult trips, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, that's that's what we listen to during dinner it's every true. night. We listen it's to true. Epcot area music. Right. We've recently kind of bopped back and forth between that and the Disney Springs area music, but for a good two years, it was the Epcot music. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about things that are returning to both Walt Disney World and the Disneyland Resort. At Walt Disney World, Festival of Fantasy is coming back as well as an updated version of the stage show Mickey's Magical Friendship Fair with a new song, Where the Magic Feels Like Home. Fantasmic is uh, returning, as is the Finding Nemo show, but it has been rebranded as Finding Nemo, The Big Blue and Beyond, and it it would appear that they're going to shift focus to the storyline from Finding Dory, which is 
I mean, I, I feel like if you're having a Finding Nemo show, you should just do Finding Nemo. And if you're not going to do Finding Nemo, I, I mean, does, the, the question becomes, does anybody care enough about Finding Dory to sit through a show called Finding Nemo that's actually not about Finding Nemo? Right. I mean, well, here's the thing. I don't want to gloss over the really great news that we have a parade and a huge show coming back. And I believe they are also adding a scene to Fantasmic. So I'm really excited to find out what that's going to be. Yeah. Because they haven't even hinted at what film or what song they're, they've they chosen. No, there there are rumors that it's not an addition. It is a replacement. But I didn't read it from anybody that I would call a credible source. So I'm, I'm not going to report on it. I think I can make an educated guess on what is getting replaced. Well, I don't want to report on it because until I hear it from somebody credible, it's not news. It's yeah. hearsay. We'll, we'll put a pin in that. Right. Uh, but no, it's great that those things are coming back and likewise with finding nemo because we just did our trip recap episode and one of the things that we talked about a lot is how you really feel in these wait times not having these crowd suck attractions um so i think it's definitely important that we're getting a show back um i actually i'm i'm good with an update because i think the thing is yes everybody loves finding nemo but i feel like for most people that have gone or go every year, they've seen it. So I don't think that a revamp is going to hurt it. And, you know, like I said, you have to give people a reason to want to go to those shows and allevi- alleviate some of the pressure on the, the ride queues. Right. Now at Disneyland Resort, they are getting Fantasmic back as well, uh, as well as the Main Street Electrical Parade and World of Color. Yes. Now this is where I am not reporting on rumors because as Destination D was approaching and the word broke that Disneyland was getting the Main Street Electrical Parade, a rumor, Fast and Furious, spread through the interwebs that Paint the Night was coming to Walt Disney World specifically that it was going to go to Hollywood Studios, that never got announced. No nighttime parade was announced for Walt Disney World at the Destination D event. Correct. But I don't know if you saw this. The reason that rumor got so much traction is because Disney Parks themselves planted it on TikTok. We did exactly what they wanted us to do with the information that they gave us. I'm not saying that there's truth to it, but... They wanted a frenzy, and they got one. They certainly did. Um, I almost went into a frenzy because I just read quickly that AMC was getting torn down at Downtown Disney, and I went, oh, God, no. And then I realized, wait a minute, Downtown Disney is Anaheim, not at Walt Disney World. So that is getting torn down, and they're going to do a reimagining of the area in January of 2022. It's going to be... SoCal, mid-century, modern-inspired, and it's going to be a green space. Um, We've been to downtown Disney. There's not a ton that you can do to expand downtown Disney, so I think the only option they had was to take down this AMC and add more dining and shopping options. Um, I mean, look, if it was underperforming, they're making the right move to give people something to do. For sure. I mean, I never want to see a movie theater close, especially after, you know, the past year and a half. But um, it's not like Disney Springs, where if you're 
DVC and you're going for a week long or more and you get a rainy day, you need that there. You need something or you need somewhere for people to go other than restaurants on a rainy day. So I totally get that. In Disney Springs, I imagine that being more of like a local theater. Yeah. But, you know, for people in the Anaheim area, if if it's not being utilized there and and people aren't attending a movie on their vacation, I, I get it. I do. So they are also getting magic bands at Disneyland. Never had magic band before. People are very excited about this. Well, they're getting the magic band plus, which is also coming to Walt Disney World. And Hey Disney, the Amazon Echo feature that's similar to Alexa that was announced at Walt Disney World. They are also going to get it at the Disneyland area hotels, which I don't think is much of a surprise. Right. Um, They've also announced the new uh, DVC tower coming to the Disneyland Hotel, inspired by classic Disney films. Um, I think that that's great. I, I don't think there's a ton there for DVC. Um, so I think to add a new tower, but to have these classic films represented, I think is important because it's very specific to the region because you are so close to the Disney studios and the history. Absolutely. I think that's a good move. Uh, Disney Cruise Line announced that they're getting two new stage shows, Seize the Adventure, which is going to be a Minnie uh, Mouse-inspired show, as well as Disney's The Little Mermaid. They also showed uh, a scene from what they call Swiss Meltdown, which apparently is a storyline for their Aquamouse Aquacoaster. It's like the first Disney attraction at sea. Like it's an actual Aquacoaster. And it's going to tie to the Mickey and Minnie cartoon. Correct. Um, And they also announced a Star Wars Hyperspace Lounge. It's going to be one of these, you know, floor-to-ceiling screens, and it makes you look like you're in space, but you're on a cruise ship. So I don't really... I mean, this is one of those things where it's like, I know you got to jam Star Wars in everywhere, but if I'm, you're trying to develop this fully immersive hotel at Disney's Hollywood Studios that they're going to clobber you over the head to attend for three days. Now when I'm on a cruise ship on the water, I'm also in outer space, and that just doesn't really make a lot of sense. I've actually been saying I think they should do a Star Wars cruise. Nothing makes you feel like you're on a spaceship more than being in on the interior of a, of a boat when you can't see the outside. I think the theming is all there. But yeah, I mean, just based on what I've heard about the storyline of how they're going to do the Star Wars hotel, I kind of feel like you would break it if you went up to the top deck and all of a sudden you see blue skies. So I get it. And water. Yes. Another thing that I loved, uh, did you see the footage, the footage of Josh Jamaro turning on the lightsaber? Yes. Like a real one? Yes. It looks cool. That looks pretty cool. Um, and then the Grinch stole Christmas. If you were looking to, <laughs> if you were looking to buy new annual passes for yourself, your loved ones, your children, um, if you didn't do it yet, you're not gonna be able to unless you are a Florida resident that wants to go ride Splash Mountain on a Thursday. Because as of right now, the only pass that is available is the weekday pass for Florida residents. All other APs have been suspended until, quote-unquote, 2022. Look, we had a four-hour-and-something-minute trip recap where we talked about how insane the parks were in terms of attendance. And this is, I think, 
it's my opinion that this is being masked as crowd control during a very busy time of the year. Um, but Bob Chapik hates APs. He hates annual pass holders. So, call it what you want. I think that this is to strike down the amount of APs that can join. They're calling it crowd control, but it's also a way of not having to hire more people to come back because you can't staff it enough to control the crowd. I agree. And I feel bad for people, especially if you were going to give it as a Christmas gift, that are now unable to do that. But the other part of me is like, you know what? You got a petition with over 200,000 signatures on it that once you gone, keep keep doing the stuff. Go ahead. Let's just speed up the process. You know, we talked about how we're we are supposed to become APs in 2022. Yes, we talked that on our about it on our four-hour-long episode. We were sitting at the Dawa Bar, and in Animal Kingdom, and we were ready to to make a move on the AP for next year. We talked about it at length, and you know what? Now, for uh, you know, that would be for us. We had planned on taking multiple trips, right? Well, that's multiple trips where you're not paying for hotels you're not paying for meals you're not paying for this you're not paying for that it like it it is so nearsighted to me mm-hmm. that you're going to cut off these APs because i know that there are a lot of locals that go there regularly and they're going to spend money right they're going to be there cuz they're going to go a couple of times a week and they're going to have snacks and they're going to eat lunch maybe they don't buy the merch as frequently because they're there but they're going to go to disney springs and spend money in that area but you can't ignore the out-of-state APs that when they go there, you've got them raked in for a hotel. And unless they have their own car or are going to get Ubers to leave, and most of them don't, you lock in all of their spending money for the length of their trip. Mm-hmm. This just seems to me like, it's like, what else can I do to go out of my way to aggravate this fan base? Well, I think that's it. I think that Chapek doesn't like APs in the sense of Florida residents because unless they're coming up like from Miami or something, they're not going to spend the money on hotels. I think that's what he's trying to thin the herd of people who are just coming for the day. Or maybe he the mentality is really block out the APs that are going to come on vacation. All right, you lose hotels and the spending money, but now I just freed up hotels for the family that's going to come and spend $10,000 on a once-in-a-lifetime trip. I get that. And, and I'm not saying what you're saying is invalid, but think about... Friends of ours. That's a like to your point. It's a once in a lifetime trip. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm saying that could only. That's the only way I understand this mentality is why you were trying to free up hotels and mm-hmm. shunning APs in the process. So- I don't agree with any of it, but b- because it's not for crowd control, it's no. not like he cares about that. But you have. To your point, people that go and spend the once in a lifetime, there's that phrase, once in a lifetime. We know a lot of people who have families of four people, five people that live in Florida that have APs for four people or five people every single year. 
And if they want no blackout dates, and a lot of our friends have passes with no blackout dates, you're talking about anywhere between five and $6,000 per year. So where you have the once-in-a-lifetime family, you get their $10,000 once. These other people, you're getting five, $6,000 every single year. And that's his biggest problem is that he's not thinking long-term. No. And I said it on the, on the trip recap, and I think it, it should be said again here. In my opinion... He does not look at Walt Disney as a person. He looks at Walt Disney as a brand. And I don't think he has any idea the values, the morals, or the joy and the love that is the foundation of this company. Right. I don't think he understands that at all. But with all of that being said, we want to hear what you have to say about all of the D23 mentionings i can't even call them announcements uh all of the d23 (laughs) confirmations uh let us know about if you got shut out of an ap like we did let us know how you feel about this new netflix hire and if you're excited for the future of disney plus on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio or you can email us monoreal radio at gmail.com don't forget when it comes to that social media we still have a contest that is running for a couple of more days for an excellent Disney prize pack that we picked up on our trip down to Walt Disney World. Yep, we've got some park maps. We've got some 50th anniversary merch. We've got a bag of Joffrey's coffee waiting for you and a lot more. Oh, and a t-shirt. Yeah, we got the Disney Disney uh, Studios t-shirt. Yeah, we got a ton of stuff. That's going to run until Monday, November 29th at 11.59 p.m., All of it's on social media. Go follow the instructions there and make sure that you are following that Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Enter on all three. Get three chances to win. It's only good for you. Anyway, but thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget all of that social media and the email address. We're on TikTok as well at Monoreal Radio. Uh, Make sure that you like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to all of the social media and everywhere you can find the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.